This is a loving robot podcast, recounting tales from EverQuest directly from the people who worked on it. And now here's your host, Sean Lord. So my name's Todd. My GM name was Caphys, C-A-P-H-Y-S, I think. Um, and actually, I was a GM on Bichon. So uh, some of you may remember me from those days as I had to uh, to govern the uh, politics between FOH and the various, various Asian guilds at the time. Uh, so that was pretty fun. Um, but actually, that name comes from my guide name. I actually was a guide in uh, Beta 4. So 1998, um, and I was a guide on um, Fen and Row. So that was uh, that was where that name came from, and it was basically they were told, "Oh, you have to pick a new name. You can't use your your play character's name." And I think I hit the random name generator a few times for like barbarian, and then I modified a few characters, and that's what stuck. Always a barbarian, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. So, Barbarian Warrior in, was my initial... Uh, yeah, pretty much Barbarian Warrior because, like, again, with the uh, whole GM and spellcasting and stuff, having an actual spellcaster as your GM kind of screwed up your character sometimes. So it was just easier to pick a non, non-mana class. Right on. And so from there, that was before I met you. Um, cause I didn't get there till early 2000. Yeah. So I started at Verant in August of 1999. I basically, it, it was kind of, this is one of those stories I tell people, like they ask, well, how did you get into the game industry? And I'm like, I'll tell you my story, but don't do what I did. Cause <laughs> it was, you know, pure luck. Um, I had, I basically how I got introduced to EverQuest was, uh, I was, I was helped some friends start up an internet cafe, uh, back in, uh, uh, the Illinois area near St. Louis. And one of the, one of the friends of the family, they had, uh, they got into, they were big enough into muds, D and D stuff like that. And we were, we were tinkering around with a circle mud back then. And, uh, one of my one of my friends is like, hey, I'm playing this game, you know, I'm in beta. You want to check it out? And so it was beta three of EverQuest. Um, and since we had an internet cafe, we had computers that could play it, right? So we had like, you know, I think the first video card was like just the first Voodoo card, and uh, so we had a computer that could play it. And I think he ended up getting stuck doing some college stuff and didn't have time to play anymore. So I kind of took over his account, and then. Uh, my, you know, I, then they were asking about guides. Like there was a, a post that went out. I think it was actually from uh, Michelle Butler and Jeff when they had just gotten to uh, San Diego to help with the customer service program and the guide program. And I saw a message. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'll give it a try. It's not a big deal. It's something different to do. And uh, I got the job or the job for the free customer service, right? Um, and then I think after like beta four, uh, my GM, I don't remember her name. Um, trying to think now, but she's like, hey, do you want to become a GM? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be cool. Didn't really think anything of it. 
And then a week later, Michelle Butler, like one of those cold calls where you're just sitting there one day and you get a phone call and it's Michelle Butler on the line going, Hey Todd, we heard you're interested in becoming a GM. Would you like to, would you like to do an interview? And I'm like, sure. And I think she asked me like three or four questions. It was like a 15 minute interview. And she's like, well, you know, if you want the job, just come out to San Diego. I'm like, uh, how do I do that? <laughs> how old, how old were you at the time? Uh, I was 23. So it wasn't like, you know, a big deal from that standpoint. Um, my current job, I don't remember what I was doing. It was probably like computer repair or something like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I basically at that point just told my parents, I'm like, Hey, I'm moving to California. Went and, and then just drove off to California, like in two weeks. Yeah. A dollar an hour a job and, and sleeping on the, on the floor of someone's apartment. Do you remember whose apartment? She's not in chat at the moment, is she? Bonita no, just arrived. Okay. <laughs> no, this was, uh, I was up in Escondido. So it was with, uh, uh I see, uh, Bonita in chat. She might remember. Um, who was that? It was, um, the key master and his girlfriend. Oh my God. Oh, uh. When you say that, I'm just like, it's, there's, it's almost there. Like it just started to, when you said you, you had, uh, the, the GM that you worked for was a her, it wasn't Lydia by any chance. Satosha, Satosha. No, no, no. Um, no, I, I stayed with, uh, Lynn and, uh, uh in Escondido after that, that was, that's okay. when we actually rented the house with, uh, with Steve, um, uh, Fisnick? No, what was his? Name? <sighs> uh, uh, not Minnick. Steve uh, Fuller. So yes, um, Minnick. No, Minnick. Yeah, Minnick. Steve Fuller. Yeah, yeah. Like Halfling Rogue or something like that. He was always causing mischief. That was his. That was like his GM thing was to cause mischief. Um, but uh, no, before that, I stayed with. Uh, a group of kids that were just, there was like five of us crammed into a two bedroom apartment. People sleeping on the couch. I was sleeping on the floor. Like we were there for a few months before we, you know, trying to get settled before we actually were able to get like a house to rent. Okay. Yeah. Cause I remember like when I got there, there were a number of the camps. So there was like <laughs> Esther's camp and, Eugene and Tom and, and Jeremy and those guys and with Brian and yeah. So it's, <clears throat> there, there were the camps. I felt kind of privileged to have my 20 square foot sort of sketchy apartment in North park, to be honest. So, okay. You got there. You're uh, GM now. So, um, we were, I was also there when like, the the whole technical disasters of some of the, the servers happened. Um, so basically, you know, if you can imagine our server room was actually right below us. Um, we were in a, in the Scranton data center. I think it's, you know, if for those of you around the San Diego, it's where the Carl Strauss is in the Scranton business, uh, park. And, um, 
so our server room was basically, we didn't have computer racks. Like, so one of the things I had to do was help um, the IT guy with like replacing hard drives because we would lose zone boxes all the time. Um, so I had some, you know, IT background, so I helped with that. Uh, I also joined the apprentice program. And so I worked with like Tony and uh, Zackins and, you know, Roger and Clover and all those guys. It was really fun. And one of the first tasks I had was to start finishing the monk quests from Kinos. Actually from Kinos and Freeport, because I think they only went to like, I don't know, like the yellow or yellow headband. Um, so that was like my first design apprentice test. Mm-hmm. Was that? So before we go too much further on the GM topic, we already had our first cre- question roll in. Thank you, Bunny. Mm-hmm. Um, Vulork asked, what was it like governing those politics before spawn time variants on Vision? It was one of the things I remember was that so for the GMs for our our work schedule was like eleven AM to like ten PM or it was like, you know, covering a lot of the PST time. <clears throat> the problem at that point is by the time I get in my my queue of complaints because various guilds had you know, we're not following the schedule or, you know, doing something like that was, was pretty high. So, you know, there wasn't a, a, like guilds, like, you know, before there was, everyone gets to get their loot or their spawn. There was some unofficial schedule, obviously nothing blessed by us, but, you know, trying to help, uh, play uh, negotiator or mediator between those guilds was always was always interesting. It was just you know back then it was just a lot of a lot of complaining. And I apologize if you can hear screaming kids; they're running around downstairs somewhere. Oh, don't apologize at all. It's been a really cool theme on the show, to be honest. <laughs> so it's like it's like everybody's got kids, and I know with everybody being like stuck at home and all that, it's they're going to be there. So, um, yeah, and it's funny because like the, the complaints would never just come in like one at a time, right? It was never like one person complaining for the guild. It was 70 people complaining for the guild. Well, that was, you know, those are some of the rules you set up as a GM. It's like, um, you know, the first time that happens, you're like, okay, you know, if you want your complaint to be heard, only an officer or the guild leader can send a complaint. And so if they didn't, you know, that wasn't followed, I just delete all the complaints and there would be nothing. (laughs) Um, So unfortunately I felt like I ruled with an iron fist sometimes. Like there was cases where people were just not listening and I had to just, you know, pull them into flame up here and sit them on top of the hourglass and be like, look, you're stuck here especially for the non-caster types or if the caster type, I just bind them there and be like, until you guys can work things out between the guilds, you're stuck here. And, uh, it, it seemed kind of ruthless, but that was, there was no, I mean, otherwise it was just plan of fear training, plan of hate training, training each other all day long. Right on. 
So your description there is very much like in line with my image of Utah. That seems like I, I didn't know you as a GM really, but that's uh, it, if I imagine you as a GM, that that seems in line. Um, and so cool. So you were in the apprentice program, did the monk stuff, and then essentially uh, at some point you're working way onto the team or got pulled onto the team. Yeah. So we had, that was like the first work I did. And then we actually put it on an apprentice program together and I'm going to apologize in advance for this, but we did uh plane of error or sorry. Um, what's the, it's like not sky plane, but you know, the first original plane of error, we po- finished populating that and, and making that the new rate zone. Um, it was okay. There was a lot of, it, I wasn't like the sole contributor. There was a number of us that contributed to that. Um, then after that, basically, is when we had the transition to uh, Sony Pictures briefly and then Sony Online Entertainment from Verant. And from there, I was doing uh, design content for Kunark. And to this day, I don't really remember what I was doing. I remember doing a lot of stuff in Fear Out of V, but... Mm-hmm. It, that i don't remember much someone's gonna have to like jog my memory there are definitely people that can do that cool and so i've always known you primarily as a programmer or engineer whatever the hell you guys want to be called these days yeah so um during kunark i think um Again, we were all doubled up in cubes type thing. I think uh, Lawrence was in my cube with me. Um, I know his name's come up a couple of times, and I remember having to deal with uh, the spit cup next to my <laughs> keyboard. Um, man, what was I working on? I I honestly don't remember. I think I there was some stuff I did with uh, designing the like the um, the visualizations for the warrior epic so like the particle blades that was something that no one was like playing with at the time it's like how do we make we basically took what was the brad's fiery sword and we tried to change how the particle effects work create the warrior epics Um, i did i know i did some content um but nothing like none of the major dungeons or anything like that that I can remember. And from a coding perspective, it was mostly probably just adding stuff for ability, like spell effects or item effects or something like that. Pretty simple. Right on. So one of the questions that came up, um, and thank you, Bunny, for posting those for me, um, was uh, Nobby Knobs had asked, did you make any epic quests? And so it sounds like on a technical side, at least uh, I did do one epic quest. Like I said, you remember how things were kind of just doled out, like who wants to work on this? Um, I actually did the enchanter epic. Um, so I was more of a casual player. I didn't do any hardcore rating. So I wanted to create something that was, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, it was more about making something accessible, um, and, but it was like all just discovery, right? So the only way you could complete the quest is 
is like a big like treasure hunt um, type thing. You follow the clues that were very, you know, you know how it is. Like, cause we knew everything would be completed by a community in a very short period of time. So we knew they were going to collaborate. Uh, so and you can throw a thousand bodies at, at, at a problem, no matter how good the riddle is, someone's going to solve it pretty quickly. Uh, Do you? So, it, so, you know, it's, I don't know. Is it, is it easy now? I don't know. Like don't, I was a clear. Don't listen to chat. Don't listen to chat. They, as soon as they heard I did Beast Sword Epic, it was like, oh my God, that was the easiest epic quest. Now it's. I, I was a cleric and I, I worked with my guild to get that epic. And I felt horrible that I put my guild through the fact of getting that epic. Because for three days, I think it was like three to five days straight, sat in. Um, freaking skyfire and just waited and waited and waited. And then when the time, when the spawn, cause the spawn was variable between three to five days and it went past the three day mark and it went past the four day mark. You're like, Oh my God. When I, when I took that one hour nap, did someone like kill steal it or something like that? It's right. Like whole problem over again. Um, do you know offhand who worked on the rogue epic? Yeah, that was Kaposi. Okay. Um, cause he was, he was, a. Uh, Came from a safe house, right? Um, <sighs> Did he? Oh my god! When you say that, it sounds so familiar now. Yeah, his his GM name was Kendrick. Like, I think if you search that, you should be able to find that. Like, he was. Um, and so, I mean, take for granted what epics are supposed to be, but I think you know. I remember some discussions about difficulty with epics and I seem to remember a conversation with him on it's stupid that these are so hard <laughs> and uh, kind of made it easy word. Um, yeah. I, it's funny. I, I've, I've reached out to him this week. Um, I have limited, like I use LinkedIn and stuff to try to get a hold of people. So if I don't hear back from him, I may have to tap into some other folks and see if somebody's got a handle on John. But yeah. uh, I, there are a lot of questions that have come up in here that I think John and maybe only John would be able to answer related to his work. Um, let's see. So going back through the question list, um, I think we covered the rogue, the epic question. Um, Nick has been... Uh, he just asked here, but I know we've been talking about this one in preparation for this. So Nick asks, can you talk a little bit about the development of project M? What was the vision of the experiment? And did you have other ideas in mind for it? I know we're, I, I believe we're jumping ahead timeline wise, but we'll get back yeah. to the timeline. Sure. Sure. But yeah, that's jumping to, to level and development. Um, I don't remember how the original conversation came up. Uh, so Steve Clover, uh, one of the original, original developers of our request programmer was, you know, right outside my cube by this time we had moved to a different part of the building. And, uh, man, I don't remember. I think this really kind of stems from GM events, right? So GM events, you have the ability to, uh, become an NPC, right? You, so you would control the NPC and this is how a lot of GM events 
would work. Um, and so I think from that, we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we had an alternate advantage? I mean, this was meant to be player progression where you could level up specific NPCs through the normal environment and you would unlock like level tiers. So basically you would start in Kinos and you'd spawn as a, as a rat. And then if you got the lap, the rat to like level four or five, then you would progress to the next to Kino Hills where you could be a wolf. And then if you managed to get the wolf to a couple more levels, then you can proceed to the next, the next tier. And it kind of, it kind of worked like that. Um, I think what we ended up doing was it was based on, ended up being based on your level unlocked like tiers of, of uh, monsters. And I remember one of the ones that I did just for the fun of it was like, you know, I became a madman. And I think South row. And I was like, that was a wizard. And I'm like, Oh, this is going to be fun. And the first thing I do is I run over to uh, where the, the, the crocs are. And I see a druid and I root him. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, this is going to cause problems. Um, and so I think at some point we had to, um, start restricting what you could spawn as because as a caster, you would have un unlimited mana, right? So the, the mana, you, you actually became the NPC. So you had all his abilities and stats and anyone who's played knows that NPCs have like an insane amount of mana. And so you could just sit there as a, as a, a monster NPC and just cast forever. I'm going to turn you up slightly per request in chat. We'll see if this is good. Chat will let us know as we go. Um, I'm hearing you pretty good, but it can definitely be a little bit louder. Yeah, it's funny. As soon as you said that, um, <clears throat> I remembered as a GM, yeah, we had basically, we'd make a new character of the appropriate class of the monster that we're going to be. And then we just did that little, I think it was really just like a transform. Yeah, it was like become NPC or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, the concept for Project M was super cool. And it seemed like it was just uh, a spare time sort of passion project at the time. Yeah, I don't know how um, we were allowed to work on it, considering what was going on at Buckland at the time in terms of the amount of work. But I think we caught the eye of, you know, Smed and, and Jeff and Brad and even, even Bill at the time, Bill Trost, and they're like, oh, this is amazing. This is like, you know, no one's ever done this before. And it was definitely something that was unique to EverQuest. And it felt like more of a role-playing, you know, D&D style feature. Yeah. And the way I remember it, though, it was like, I know there was a ton going on, more than should have been going on, really. Like, it was a crazy process. But I also... I. I I got the sense and tell me if I'm wrong, but I got the sense that it was kind of like, Hey, with all the effort going into all this shit, trying to get it done, we need, or let me, let me do this different. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but 
you need to let me do this thing that's fun every once in a while just so I can decompress and not murder everybody. Yeah, and I think um, we had gotten like a proof of concept done pretty quickly, uh, like on, in our spare time. Yeah. And so that, that allowed us to like actually spend work time on it. And what about gyms? Because I couldn't remember if that was you or Steve or you and Steve or somebody else. What was it? Gyms. Oh, oh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> uh, that was totally Steve Clover. That okay. was 100% him. Um, is that still in game? I don't, I don't think so. Is it? Type it. Yeah. See if it's still in game. Oh my god. It's still in game. <laughs> I had totally forgotten about that. Now you can just play this on stream all day. Yeah. All right. So forget stream raiders. We'll just I'll just sit and play gyms. All right. Done. Otherwise, I'll be too distracted. We'll all be distracted. I didn't even try it. That's crazy. I didn't try it. All right. So there it is. Um, yeah. So, so Steve did that in his spare time. That was, like you said, that whole not going insane type thing. That was probably why he did that. Yeah. Um, how big was, so do you remember how big the team was during that period? Lucklin or, or Kunark? You know what? Let's go back to Kunark because we did jump ahead. So let's work chronologically so our memories will work. Okay. Um, so for Kunark, uh, that's when I actually became an engineer um, from designer. Uh, and I can, I can still visualize that, that entire office. Um, I know where pretty much everyone sat. Um, there was probably only like 30 of us, maybe 25, um, maybe less. Like there was only a few of us that were doubled up in cubes and the artists were sitting in the middle of the office space. Um, obviously the engineers and there's like, you know, uh, Steve and Roger and Brian hook. Um, and then the producer types. Yeah, and like 25 people max. And we had also just, you know, brought on, I think, uh, Roy at that time for, for uh, redoing Eli. So that was in progress at that time, I think. So. Yeah, so I'm just making a quick note because some of this stuff, as it comes up, I mean, I'll have it in the video, but still, why not write it down? It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Those people were involved and gives me some more potential leads um let's see guys i'm not ignoring your questions i've got them right here as as they're being passed on what i'm going to try to do is plug them in as we work through the chronology and see if that'll work um and, and no worries nick don't apologize for asking a good question all right so you you came in so that was that was going into velius basically uh, yeah, I keep forgetting there's a jump between Kunark and, and Lepling. Actually, when we talk about Velius, I think there's a memory gap there, and I'm not 
really sure why. I know there's one thing I worked on in Bellius, but for Kunark, um, just going back to that, one of the things we, we had to deal with is, is uh, the design, initial design for EQ2 coming up. So like other people had mentioned, no one, no one considered this game going beyond the original title. And so when Kunark development was being done, you know, that was it. We were done. That was going to be the last expansion was Kunark. And that's why you see such a power gap between the old world and Kunark, because we were basically told, just make it fun. Like, make everyone feel powerful. There was really no guidance like what was created for for items was just insane. I mean, if you just look at the armor sets from the what original 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 EQ. Now it's I don't know now power gap. I don't think it's that great because of all the additional features that have been added to the original game. But back then it was huge. And so, and you're probably seeing some of these rolled in as well. Um, there was a question as we kind of move into the, the Lucklin or the Velius era and then eventually Lucklin, uh, back on Plane of Sky, Frank the Bank asked, what was the discussion like for Plane of Sky to use Death Touch so liberally? Do you remember? Don't remember. Um, I want to say that it was a way of of forcing a certain DPS amount. So we didn't have a, a, any timers back in the day, right? There was no scripting. There was no timers. There was no, like, you could only, you wanted to make the fight doable, but at the same time, you didn't want it to be, like, an instant res fest. Like, you could just battle res everyone or whatever, whatever was, I forget what was doable at the time. Um, and so the death touches were possibly a way of just restricting the fight. Like you have to beat them before this time period. I, I don't remember the specifics though, because I yeah. really didn't do big fights there. I think I was just mainly working on the, the item collection for turn in stuff. Like I have, um, I have a, so this is my original binder um, from when I was a GM and it has even like one of the things we used to do is uh, actually the first page on here is like the plane of sky item chart on how every item maps to every quest and uh it's it's got work you know i have all the classes on here with uh what island dropped what component and uh what rarity and so that was like one of the things we designed um and this is back also when we had to print out you know the item and spell uh databases because as gms we weren't given privilege to any of those tools so we had to like ask for a weekly printout of everything so that if we needed to reimburse them, I don't, we actually had the item numbers to it. <laughs> Dude, I forgot about that. <laughs> um, and that was around like when I got there, that was still like a trying to get that info was crazy. 
Yeah. And there's also something else in that binder. Um, so one of the things we had to do is if we were going to suspend or discipline someone, we actually had to write, write them up essentially, you know, their character name, their account, what their offense was, get it signed off by our leads. I have every, every record of every uh, disciplinary action I've taken against a player still in that binder. So you, you, you see the offers in chat to buy the binder already, right? I, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of history in that binder. Museum piece. We'll, we'll, at some point we'll have to actually pull this together for the EQ museum. Um, all right. So, and as I look at, as I look at the questions come in and start thinking of flow of this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let them pile up a bit and then we're going to hit them at different intervals. But I really, I think it'll be fun to let you just keep flowing down memory lane. Um, sure. It's, it's also like how I can remember stuff like, like the black holes in my memory of what was happening at that time is like, they're huge. But every time someone mentions something, it like, it like jogs a little bit of the memory and stuff starts coming back. So this is cool. Yeah. It's, it's been that way since, since I started for me, for sure. And it's like everybody we talk to and everybody that comes in chat and asks questions are like a little bit of the memory starts to come back more and more. It's actually pretty crazy. Um, all right. So the, the gap in terms of Velius, you don't remember why or, uh, so the gap between original and Kunark was because this was it. We were done with the game. Oh, no, no. Your memory gap. The the power gap oh, makes perfect sense. Gap. Yeah. Um, the only thing I really remember, I mean, I remember Bellis mainly because I played that expansion a lot. Um, and I did do content in Bellis. Uh, I worked on, I did all the design work and itemization for Crystal Caverns. And so, because I was an engineer now at that time, I still loved the design. So, as an engineer, I was given like one zone where the designers had like two or three zones or, you know, major stuff. Um, so, I did Crystal Caverns with uh, James Romney. If you remember him? <sighs> I do now, yeah. Um, and so we spent a lot of time tweaking, you know, just little things like just the ambient, you know, the ambience of the zone with the, the lighting, um, you know, how many, like we were restricted to only like 16 lights in, or it was maybe even eight lights in the zone. So what we could do to make it like visually appealing was, was very difficult. We had to place each light at a specific coordinate in order for it to not overwrite a nearby crystal light. Um, I think that's all changed because, you know, there's no, probably not any restrictions on that now from a, from an engine standpoint. Um, and I think I did, might've done some work with, um, you know, just coding up some of the, the beast Lord stuff or sorry, Velius, um, descripting stuff. um, but yeah, I don't remember doing much else in there. I was probably just working on back-end features. Mm -hmm. Cool. And then Lucklin. It seems like your memory's maybe a little... Like Lucklin stands out a little bit more. 
Luckland is is definitely stands out a lot more, and it's also because that's when a lot of you guys um, came into it pretty heavily, and also watching all the other vods, it's triggered a whole bunch of the memories. So if we get you know someone like Tom Wells um, or you know some of the original designers during the Kunark and Velius to come in, um, they probably have you know jog some more memories. Right on. Yeah, and um, there are a couple of people, like even getting Steve in, uh, Steve Burke, the the work that he was doing there, because I know he's collaborating with those guys pretty heavily. And he was sort of my go-to. I, I went to Steve, and Steve went to the team during that era, because I was like, his, as an apprentice, I was his, he was an apprentice, and I was his unofficial apprentice, in a sense. Um, let's see. Um, all right, so before we... Before we go into Luckland, let me hit a couple of these, and that way they, they don't backlog too much. Uh, we cover that. Retro Gamer asks, nope, we already covered Rogue Epic. Uh, Cast Crack asked, why wasn't the VP no gate, no CR thing applied to other dungeons? Do you know? No clue. Fair enough. Sometimes that is going to be the answer dude <laughs> for me i do that a lot um looking ahead retro gamer 5000 asked did you have any involvement in eldon dungeons um uh, yeah um but at that time i was uh you know 100 percent into programming you know engineering at that point so uh looking at the feature set i probably worked on some of that stuff. I don't remember when the raid UI came out, but I know I helped with that and like some of the guild features, um, the instancing. We were also doing a lot of just backend server support to keep the game running and expanding. Um, we had some, you know, some technical growth issues. We, you know, the servers could only handle so many people. But you wanted them to handle more because as the expansions got bigger and bigger, you know, people got more and more spread out. So you didn't want to make the, the world feel empty. So you wanted to enable that player cap to get much higher. Right. Um, next question on the list, also from Retro, was, do you know who remade Freeport? No. I, I was... I had left um sony briefly obviously to go work on vanguard and i think the revamps happened after that okay. like the the individuals on revamps i mean we had the new the new terrain editor and engine stuff done um because you saw that in you know starting you see that in luckland and then the following expansions um i'm not sure when the decision was to go through and in, in revamp zones. My personal opinion on that is I wish that was never done. Like I it's really hard to find a revamp a revamp zone that I'm like, oh this is way better. Um and I know a lot of effort has gone into it from the 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 direction. Like I I do not fault at all any of the artists or designers or anyone who's worked on that. But given the tool set, um it it would have been difficult to really create that nostalgia or kept that, that vision, um, 
of what the original zone looked like and felt for the people who had been playing since day one. Yeah. No, that's fair. Uh, I appreciate the balance on that one. It's a candid answer with, with a, a nice follow up. Cause that's the way I feel basically. Uh, it, it's, it's the same. Well, uh, you heard like when I first joined Aerodin, um, I rolled a, a halfling druid and you know, I'm in Rivervale and I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. Love the music. And I pop out the zone line in the, in the misty and I'm like, what, what happened? Like, where is, where's Misty Thicket? It's, it's gone. So I was, that was my initial reaction. I'm like, ah, but now that I've, I played through it for 12 levels, it was like, okay, I get it. Um, but I still miss my Misty Thicket. Yeah. Nostalgia, man. It's a, it's a hell of a drug. So the next question and um i'm gonna i'm gonna go through these and then we'll get back on just sort of the memory lane tip frank the bank asked uh what was the discussion like nope we've already covered that one i jumped ahead that was the death touch one all right uh retro gamer ask him uh if he was happy with the design for the bizarre oh uh, okay that's my fault um, so, so for, for Lucklin, one of the things I also worked on was, um, Shadowhaven. Uh, again, that was me and Mr. Romney working on Shadowhaven and that, that zone, like I had no idea, like it was so big, um, and it was supposed to, you know, it was meant to be the neutral the neutral city that everyone landed in um, and somehow that all worked and got along. Holy crap. Was that hard to populate um, and deal with? Um, But alongside that was the Nexus and the bazaar. So those were like the three, the three introductory zones that everyone landed in initially. Um, the bizarre's point, one of the things we were, you know, we were talking about, you know, EverQuest numbers um, and how Planes of Power was like where we hit the peak. Well, luckily, we knew where it was going. We knew it was going up. Um, and the East Commons thing just was, the tunnel just wasn't working. So just like, you know, we're like, okay, well, what if we made players their own vendors, right? And they, and so the concept of, well, if you buy, so I did all the, I actually did all the, I think I pretty much did like 95% of the engineering for the bizarre feature. I wanted to make it an auction house. Um, but everyone felt like that would just be too impersonal going from East common lands. Everyone's chatting, spamming to silence. Hmm. So they wanted to keep that concept. Maybe it was me who wanted to keep that concept. I honestly don't remember. Um, and so, you know, you went and bought your bag, put your crap in it, you list all the prices and you put it up and then you just left your computer running all night. And it was amazing because our, our concurrency shot up, right? And so what ended up happening was, and then everyone's like, well, now I need a second account to just be an auction house person. And so everyone bought second accounts. 
or third accounts. And um, it just kept going up at that point. And that's what started that whole, like that skyrocket of, uh, and I guess it was good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, definitely, uh, depending on who you asked as well, right? Uh, the people that were looking strictly at those metrics, I'm sure were extremely happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And let's see. Um, there was a comment about Palutal Caverns. I, I could have sworn Palutal, uh, wasn't that a uh, coil? Maybe. Yeah. I, I don't remember really helping that out at all. Um, that, that zone still drives me crazy because it's like, two areas, I think like two pathways. Yeah. So, and I only remember, I only remember that because I could have sworn I remember him on launch day, me being next to him for some reason, or maybe he came over to the CS pit and was like, Hey, are there any players in this zone? I was like, some people are walking around, but they're wondering where the mobs are. And he's like, well, they're about to see as soon as I bounce the zone. And like the expansion was live and he like bounced his own and all of a sudden it's populated. <laughs> so yeah, I, there was, um, so in the development process, when you, when you were working on a zone, um, you had to export the data to, to essentially flat file to text files, right? It was just all, uh, delimited text files. And now that you remember that there were some cases where we actually forgot to publish the data to live because we were all testing it and probably QA was testing it and everything was fine. Just forgot the step of, you know, we didn't have a, re we didn't have a release manager. Now I think about it, there was no way to guarantee that work you did actually made it to live. I don't even remember how that happened. It was probably literally just someone copying files from one place to another. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very likely that we just forgot to publish data and it didn't go live until someone called us out or we made another fix in that zone. And then you pushed it out and everyone's like, Whoa, everything changed. We're like, no, it didn't. Or to turnips point and I'll jump ahead and get right on that. Uh, of was there any version control? You would also find out that you broke something when you broke something and then that zone got pushed and you didn't realize you act, your elbow hit the keyboard and all of a sudden something stopped working. So there was no version control on the databases. Um, there probably weren't even backups as far as I know. Uh, yeah. And so if you're, if you're in, you know, we just use like the access, you know, Microsoft access forms to access the database. And uh, like you said, if you just, you know, fell asleep at the keyboard one day and, did a face plant, you were changing content. It happened at least once. It wasn't me, <laughs> but I remember it happening. And the thing is, is that in order for the data to save, all you have to do is click off the field, right? So as long as you, the cursor was on that field, it didn't save, but as soon as you clicked off, it saved. So if you went to, if you, you know, were working on something, you went to lunch, you forgot about what you're working on, clicked off, boom, saved. And uh, I think, like, at some point for, for version, not version control, but just to kind of get an idea of what was changed, we did, we did diff, uh, start diffing files um, to do line-by-line -line comparisons of 
what actually changed. But that probably came pretty late. Fairly late, I, I would have to think. I, I just remember I had an incredible, like, learning the database was the same as learning how to use a heavy machine gun when I was in the army, right? Like it's, it's once you get used to it, it's good. It, you just have to respect the fact that it can destroy everything. So like, don't screw around, don't screw up. And yeah, it was, it was a bit terrifying when you're new. And there was no, um, you know, if there's any, anyone who's familiar with databases and how they work, there was no foreign key constraints on data. So what can happen is, is that while you're populating item tables, you could accidentally type in a random number that has no meaning and nothing would happen, right? So the item would just not spawn or drop on the loot tables. The problem is, is that, you know, two years later, someone creates an item of that ID and now there's random and that ID has always existed on item tables, but it just never spawned because it didn't exist. And now all suddenly it exists. And so we actually had a case, I think where uh, Benita might remember this Um, somewhere in one of the newbie zones, it was dropping like, you know, raid level gear. Can't remember. I think it was like, I think it might have been like rune bolster, bolster belts that were being dropped by like rats or something like that in Kinos. Um, you know, thank God like someone petitioned right away because we were able to basically like, um, we can do a slash permakill on an NPC. I don't remember that, which would essentially just, it would essentially. Data, NPC record from the you know from the live mem- server memory, uh, so that we can stop them spawning and then push off the fix. But I think that's that happened multiple times over the course of development. Yeah, it happened a few times. Um, the because if if it wasn't that instance, I remember an instance at least while I was in CS or in house. Um, all right, so looking at some of the questions, uh, knockouts. Some of these get caught back up a little bit. Uh, Major Road Rage asks, looking back, what would you have changed about Crystal Cavern that seemed like a good idea at the time? Um, I wanted to add more lore to the, the coldings that were in Crystal Caverns. I wanted to continue to expand uh, their quest lines. Their, their essentially their culture, right? So they were the, the underground version of the Coldane. I don't remember if they had a specific name to them. Um, but I kind of liked the idea of, you know, how, we, how you talked about as designers, you kind of get to organically grow a concept. And that was the one, if I had infinite time, would continually grow that concept uh, of those Coldane um, when they called that ice cold, I don't remember. Someone has to remember what they were called. Somebody's got to know that name, or they're googling right now. Um, why them, though? Uh, just because that was my little piece of Velius. Like, yeah, but like, what is it about these dudes? Like, just was it a thing that you always wanted to do, or did it just sort of as it happened? You kind of 
fell in love with him and imagine a world? Well, and, and if you get Bill Coyle on, he'll know. Um, like this is one of those, um, you know, tidbits of an expansion where you're given just like the cliff notes of, Hey, these guys exist. Here's some basic lore behind them. Run with it. Hmm. And so these guys had a weird backstory that I don't remember, but I must've liked it. So that's where I wanted to kind of just keep growing that. And I had to, you know, compete with Steve on all his colding quests and stuff like that. So there was a little bit of competition there on, on providing good content. No, sir. The, Steve, Steve would, would, he would, he would not sleep for five days and put another 400 invisible men in that zone. And you would, you would lose that competition, buddy. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. And, um, one of the other things with crystal caves, again, trying to provide a more accessible experience to some people that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, my initial item, item population, I did a lot of research on what item gaps I wanted to fill. Mm-hmm. And I had some broke ass items in there. And the reason why, and they were, you know, like the robe, I think that gets dropped down there was just meant to be a few stats better or different than like, shiny metallic robe. But the problem was, is that or whatever, everyone came in there. Like it was supposed to be a level 25 to 35 dungeon, but level fifties, sixties, everyone were going in there just to farm this robe because I don't remember what stat it had on. They're like, Oh, we've never had a robe with that stat on it. So we have to go to this dungeon to get this robe. And I'm like, Oh crap. Uh, so that, that rogue got nerfed like three times before launch. Um, and some of the items got nerfed like multiple times before launch because people would come up to me and be like, dude, you can't put that item. And I'm like, why? It's not, it's not that powerful. It just, it just filled a huge hole and the hole was, that was enough to make it desirable by every player. It's always a scary moment when your content is too loved too immediately. It's like, wait a second. Why do they like this so much? What did I do wrong? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and that's and and Zade's kind of called it out. They 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 were meant to be accessible, right? The whole dungeon was meant to be accessible by a small group, um, and so that's where that's why it was so popular. Um, it was kind of annoying to get to. That was the only thing I remember trying to get there as a low level and running to that crap that was at the gate. <laughs> Or at the clicky to get in there. I'm, I'm actually, it's one of those zones that I know I had to have spent time in with my guild, but I've drawn a blank. So I'm looking forward to when Velia sits on TLP. You would have never um, gone there with your, I mean, it's, you know, you would have gone there with like two people, three people, like one partial healer and one other person was really all you needed to go down there with. Um, most of it was soluble. You could drop straight to the bottom, right? So it was this big winding zigzag. You could drop straight to the bottom and then go to, um, uh, the city. And then the back part had some really annoying stuff, but yeah, everyone went there to camp the queen. And the other thing is, is it spawned all the time. That was the other difference. I think, and you know, you didn't, you just camp it for hours. I think you could just go down there for like half hour, and you're going to get the the rare spawn or the she's going to spawn and then 
Um, oh, yeah. So, were there geodes down there? I totally forget. Farming gems. And there was at least one other uh, farm crystalline soap there forever. Yeah. Now that you mentioned it. Yeah. So, um, do you remember who made Tower of Frozen Shadow? Um, Major Road Rage asked and added on that zone was the single best, worst, and most frustrating zone I played in post Velius release. Um, I, for whatever reason, I don't think it was made by like one person. Um, something sticks in my mind that this was one of those zones where a number of people contributed to, like, and maybe even like apprentices contributed to. Um, um Jason. I could have sworn someone Yeah, I could have sworn maybe Bill mentioned Jason. Would was that one of those zones that was assigned to somebody who then had like multiple hats to wear so they couldn't commit to it full time? And so where I was kind of going with is that the multiple people was would be because of that, because I think also Jason was not leading up the apprentice program, but had like, you know, his, his minions. And I think that's where like, and even like Kayvon and Lydia and um, whoever else could just contribute like cycles to development were contributing to that. Um, but I could be completely wrong. I could, um, what I've been doing during the, like the previous streams, like pull up the, the credits for each expansion to kind of give my mind a refresher of who was working uh, on that expansion at the time. Smart move. So <laughs> let's see. Next question. Um, Nils asked, is this why there are so many unitemized named mobs in Eastern Karanas? Uh, someone forgot to copy a file. <laughs> So is referencing, yeah. No, I don't think that's it. <laughs> it would have eventually, in the last 21 years, been copied, I think. Um, I mean, this goes back to when I when I joined Varant and EverQuest at the time, there was just so much unfinished content. Um, and so that's why I was working on the monk uh, headbands and sashes is because I played a monk at some point. And I'm like, hey, this just ended. And as a GM, you know, players don't know the content isn't finished. So when they hit a, when they hit a, a blocker, they just petition. And you're like, every day it was like, Hey, I can't get my orange sash or red sash or whatever. And you're like, well, yeah, it doesn't exist. Sorry. Um, so that's where I felt compelled from a, from a wanting to help the player standpoint of working on that content. But that was just one one piece of it. I mean, there was so much content that just had such huge gaps. And a lot of that content was only in people's minds, like Bill and Tony Garcia and all those guys, that was just all in their heads. It was never really put down on paper. So we had no guidelines. We just have to go talk to them. It's like, Hey, so I noticed this thing wasn't finished or there's this group of bandits that have names. Like what the hell are they for? Like, are they supposed to be like some known family? And then they would tell you the story. And you're like, oh, crap, that's awesome. Perhaps we should write that down so someone can eventually fix it. But 
we never did. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and a few of us ran into that as well. It was exactly as you explained. It was as either a player or a GM. I've heard about this and heard about this and it's not finished. Let me, let me hop on it. And I remember Ryan, if you're still in chat, I know we had those discussions. Paul was that way about stuff. So yeah. Um, just real quick housekeeping, uh, before I forget and feel bad cats, Twitch, Bufu, Ebdane and Colonel Tosh. Thank you for the follows. Welcome. I hope you're having a fun time here. Um, Niente asked, what was your favorite and least favorite system to work on in EQ code? The spell system was the worst. Um, but Scott started fixing that. And I was actually surprised he didn't talk about that more um, in his VOD. But he began um, fixing the spell system, like pulling apart. I think at one point, um, you know, the function was called do spell. And that was it. Every spell ability was in one function in code. And it was something like 15,000 lines of just spell code. And, uh, yeah, and so I remember Scott kind of going, oh, God, how are we going to add, you know, new abilities? Like, especially when you start talking about... um, you know, AA, which I worked a lot on. Um, and you're basically sticking more if checks inside spaghetti code that was just a mess. And you're like, this is only going to get worse. Um, and so Ryan mentioned, yeah, Krause did work on that a ton. Also, I feel so sorry for those guys. Cause it was just, an, it was just a mess. Um, but I mean, you know, it was all like that. Uh, do attack. Again, another function. You call one function and NPCs, PCs, and everything went through one function in code. There was a follow-up that tagged right into that, and I, I'm curious if I missed it here. Were procs also in the do spell code? Why do I think procs came pretty like late? Um, I don't remember. I mean, that part I don't remember, but literally it was probably just, you know, an if check. Oh, great. Now do spell. Right. So it was like, you know, the worst of worst. Oh, great. (laughs) You're in this giant combat loop. And then you're like, well, let's just let's just jump into the spell loop. What could go wrong? Yeah, because uh, Bunny mentions it here. Ryan, you may know better, but I could have sworn essentially it was just like it was a trigger that then went back into the spell code, right? I mean, it was a trigger on the so, item uh, yeah. percentage. Um. Okay, so Zade. Your question, was it already answered with regards to any insight into why East Karana named or unitemized? I think, I think we covered that one, um, in response to the other one. Cool. All right. Um, Retro asked, did you have to deal with plat sellers, um, real world traders in Bazaar? 
Oh, I have a story for you about that. Um, so Platt. So this is still, let's see here. This would have been end of Luckland, maybe legacy Akisha time. Um, Platt duping or just item duping in general was still a huge, huge issue. And I think, uh, you know, plat sellers in general and, uh, you know, the company didn't want to have anything to do with that. That was like, that was anti request. You know, everything about what requested for was being wrecked by, you know, plat sellers. Um, and, uh, sorry, my mechanical keyboard is super loud. Um, So basically, we had to come up with a plan of trying to fix the economy. And because, uh, uh, you know, just prices were skyrocketing. We didn't know why. We knew there wasn't that much plat coming into the world. And so we made a concerted effort to track down dupes. And it was, you know, people who, were, who got pretty bold with duping. Um, and they didn't care anymore. They were just like, whatever, if, if they ban this account, I'll just create a new one and start the duping. And so at one point, I wrote a little log parser. I mean, we logged everything back in the day, which was was actually pretty handy. Mm. I wrote a little log parser that acted as just like a little spider program that would track back the source of platinum to the original the original owner. And so, if you created if you traded anything, we could track it back to whoever first got that item. And we kept running the scenario where this this plot just kept magically appearing on this, on these characters. We're like, what the hell? Um, so then we started cross-referencing all their accounts, like where they were coming from, you know, just everything, you know, IPs, banking information, whatever. And we just suspended a swath of accounts. And then, uh, because we knew they were all, we knew they were all shady. We, we we got some legitimate accounts caught up in it, but most of it was just people not knowing they were buying stuff from people who had duped stuff. So they kind of got caught up in that. And um, at one point, we calculated the amount of plat we took out of the economy, and based on RMT at the time, it was something like three million USD worth of of plot we had just suspended on people's accounts in one day. Holy crap, the shitstorm from that. Um, probably shouldn't go into the details too much, but our lawyers got called. I got called into offices going, what the hell did you just do? And I'm like, and I'm like, luckily our, our lawyers were the best because they played a request. They played EverQuest. I mean, um, they were in top guilds. They were the reason why everyone worked at at Sony was because they were part of the game. Um, so three million dollars back in the day was huge. Um, and I'm like, nope. I had one of my binders, just like the one I had here. In fact, there might be some stuff in there on that. Um, and I just dropped the binder on the desk, and I'm like, here's the reason why we suspended or banned every one of these accounts, and here's how much pot was on it. And Larry goes, thanks. And that was it. And, uh, yeah, 
that was that was the end of that story. They never got their accounts back. Uh, but you know, that was it, it was our fault as developers that we got into that state. Um, so we did definitely make a concerted effort of cleaning up all the all the cases where you could dupe. Um, most of it all had to do with like trading and then going LinkedIn or like some version of like zoning, going LinkedIn, trading, whatever would not save your, it would revert your character back to a previous state. Yeah. And, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember that, that period as well. Like that was a significant topic of discussion, I guess is a, a good way to say it. So tell you what you need a quick break but we're going to keep trucking on it sounds like yep i'm just going to step away you guys can look at all the stuff in the background and cool man no worries while he does that i'm going to go open my window again uh, because it got warm in here be right back Uh-huh. All right. So let me know if the background noise, the street noise gets too loud. Um, it can be loud at times. Zenthal, Major Road Rage, Mojito, Bromigo, and Brandon, Brandon Nemo? Brandon Nemo. Thank you very much for the follows, guys. Thanks for being here. Tupac Shakur, thank you for being here. I knew you weren't dead. How's Cuba, by the way? Major Road Rage, thank you for the subscription. I really appreciate it. Cool. All right. So I, I warned folks, if the background noise gets a little too crazy, I'll, I'll get up and uh, I'll take care of that. Um, but we'll see how it goes. Super Shug, thank you for the follow. Okay, so <clears throat> now that that break is over, we had a nice sort of closing on the last topic. I'm going to get back into some questions, and, and then I've got the feeling we're going to keep going through questions. We're probably... 
you're, you're going to have to come on another time for sure. There's so much, dude, you're there 19 years and we're only a few years in. So yeah, Buckland right now. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't feel like we've gone deep in Luckland. We, we've hit some points, but Luckland was a special time. So Retro asked another question. What was the idea behind Plane of Nature Ruins Faction with Action? Factions with Action and being a raid zone? Was, what was, the, was that a good idea thinking back? I, I don't... Do you understand the question? I think I, it's either my reading of it or... <clears throat> Send it to me in, dis- in Discord. Is it like I'm not sure? Plane of growth faction ruining. Uh, oh, plane of growth ruining faction with elves. Okay. Oh, um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you kind of have to think about um, the intent of. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a raid zone, but you can run around there and not be aggroed anything. Um, and there was, there was quests in there, I think, too. Um, it was Tunari. So the idea that if you really, really wanted the items, yeah, you could get them, but at a cost. That was kind of like those... Those decisions that uh, a gamer had to make was, you know... Do I care? And we were still trying to keep people engaged in the world. Like, um, in the sense that they felt like they were part of that world and and the decisions they made had, had impact to some extent. Um, I don't know. Was it a good idea? I don't know. Uh, I didn't have a lot. I didn't have any like decision on that at that point. So, and, and I would say the, the whole, and why not keep it consistent and all that stuff during planes, especially like, and even before that, I know there was a lot of back and forth. Um, I think we maybe simplified it a bit with planes with the whole plot line of, oh, the gods realize what assholes you are. So, uh, you know. And we were, it was a challenge, right? It wasn't, you defeated the gods, you didn't really kill them, right? So the idea was that the gods were like, all right. You challenge us. Let's do it. You know, it's from that standpoint. It wasn't like you're actually soiling their their world or their plane or whatever. They didn't care that you were there. Yeah, uh, we'll let you guys figure out uh, the the Tunair, Tunari. Um, it, honestly, I think I say it different every other time I say it. So have fun with yeah. that. Either way, it could go. I think either way is fine. It's like it's like aunt and auntie. It just depends on who I'm hanging out with. Um, do you remember who designed the spirit of Garzakor quest in Velius? Uh, it doesn't ring a bell. Like I'm not even sure what that is. Was that like those those hoof guys? Like I don't know. The, the two-legged, what, Minotaur dudes? Was that what that was? Tismax? Tismax. I thought Tismax were the other guys. I don't know. No, I don't know anything about that. Cool. Pass. Um, 
please explain the fire pots in Ariac? It asks for a key when you click on the one and third gate. Or not. I do know about them. I don't know the. That's like if you could get. I'm almost positive you can get Bill on here. Bill Trost. Um, if you need me to reach out to him, I can. I'm friends with him. Um, I talked to him, obviously, most recently uh, at Brad's uh, service, but we also hang out at the beer scene occasionally, him and his, his wife. Hit him up for me. I think. I, I've, I've hit him up on LinkedIn. Um, I didn't dare to hit like LinkedIn and Facebook at the same time. I didn't want to be like, you know, that dude. Um, I'm still getting used to this whole thing. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm also very self-conscious of like, I feel like I was really an asshole back in the day. So I don't know, you know, like if I'm going to get a response from some of these guys. So if you want to reach out, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I don't think anyone cares anymore. Like I don't think so either. Like, years ago sure people like i don't want to talk to that guy he's a jerk but now we all understand where we came from why we were like that and uh we've all grown out of it yeah i figured it's been forever so cool um but i was a jerk uh let's see (laughs) um nick said hobart thanks for all the care you put into eq mac al kabor during its final years can you tell us any fun or interesting stories about working on the server or what happened internally when it went uh free to play shut down i was hoping someone would ask about that so that's why i have the banner uh behind me now um so that banner was from one of our last um even though like the it says like uh, new orleans 2004 on it um we reused those banners um in all the vegas um fanfares also and there was not a single person from Alcabor at the fanfare when they did the giveaway like so basically they were auctioned off right so it was auctioned off for like a donation or something like that and it was like I think the starting bid was like $50 um and so no one bid on Alcabor like I think the like Ralazek was the highest one or something like that um, so they gave it to me because I was kind of the keeper of Alcabor at the time. Now, how Alcabor came about um, is a pretty large topic. Do you want to go into that a bit? Because it is kind of interesting, but more for me than it is for probably you guys if you've never played on that server. Uh, let's go into a little bit at least because it's come up. So how that got started, um, it was probably during... Uh, Luckland time. Uh, it was definitely before Planes of Power launched. Um, and what happened was is that someone approached us and said, hey, we want to make a port of... Or even the company in general was, was looking at making a port of a request to the Mac. And unbeknownst to the development team, um, we were never informed. So this was kind of like a, a side project by the company. And so what they did was, is they took the code base and the design content, or actually they didn't even take the design content, just the code base and gave it to a third party and said, make a port. Um, but they never told the development team. And at this time, this is when Roy is finishing up like the direct X nine port of the engine. Um, and so 
they get the code base and content during mid planes of power development. Um, and they port it, they launch a server and we're like, Oh, there's another server. It's the Mac server. And it was a complete mess. The developers never got another code drop the entire time. Um, and it was just, it was just horrible. And so this thing was just running frozen in time. Uh, literally cause planet time didn't work. Um, and then I, I inherited it. So I'm like, oh, well, oh, I don't even remember what I was doing at the time. I think this was, I left to go work at Vanguard. I came back. Uh, I was put on Free Realms. And then I got, and then after Free Realms shipped and Clone Wars shipped, I think I just, or it was during that development sometime, I just got server dumped on me. It's like, hey, CS doesn't want to support it anymore. You know, no one wants to support it anymore. And I'm like, oh, I'll play with it. I'll, I'll see if I can get it. And so, yeah, it was, you know, I had a, I had a, my own Mac in my office, and I'd log in and just help the guys as much as I could. Like, they were just basically asking for flagging to work in pop. Like, they could not get flagged. Someone had to come on and basically give them the flag in order for their guild to progress. And I think they were still stuck in um, Tier 2 zones. And so I just went through, and what I did in my spare time was essentially import. Um, by this time, by this time, we were using source control um, and other stuff for uh, design content and code. So I could go back to a very specific point in time, like Planes of Power launch, and grab that content. And then basically all I would do is like, well, your server is so broken, it can't possibly get any worse. So I'm like just hand copying files because I can't re-export the data, but I can just hand copy files to their production servers and just go repop the zone. I'm like, is that better? And the guild would and the guild would run through it and be like, hey, we can get flagged now. I'm like, sweet, I'm done for the day. And then every day was like a new roadblock as they went through planet time or planet power progression, and I just helped them get that fixed. The last thing I actually worked on was. Uh, with Jason Match because he had done the scripting for uh, Planet Time at that point. And he was working somewhere else. I mean, this was just not that long ago um, on the grand time scale. And we, he helped me one night, like super late at night, and we went through and, and fixed the, the time script because he told me, he's like, this is how they should work. Um, and I just went through and fixed them all. It ended up being that uh, we had added code at the time so that zones could talk to other zones through scripting. And that code was completely missing from the code drop that Alcabor had at the time. Mm. So for that one, I actually had to bring over all the code for our scripting stuff into their code base and, and then redeploy all their, their servers and it worked. Um, and so, yeah, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of Alcabor, uh, memorabilia floating around the house, a whole bunch of unopened boxes because they have the. They have a really unique design for their launch. Like they got their own box, this, uh, this white one here. Push it closer. Can you? Right on. Cool. So. 
Um, yeah, no, that's that's badass. I know people appreciate it. Uh, Chet is even saying, like Rolf said, I didn't play on Mac, but that's a cool thing for you to do, Todd. Absolutely. And it was it was fun because uh, oh, there was actually um, something that's never been released or hasn't been really mentioned. I think there's only a few people that know about this. Um, I ever actually got that version of EverQuest to work on an iPad. But uh, when I showed it to Smed, at the time, Free Realms was the big thing, right? So he's like, well, can you make Free Realms do this? And I'm like, no. <laughs> that, was, that was a completely different beast. Now, we did en- end up doing like uh, some weird Mac port of Free Realms, I think. But it was like just an OS hack uh, level port. All right. So, and before we get into, we jump that far ahead. We'll uh, take it back. Keep it. Keep it in EQ for a while because there's still, I think, a lot more to go through there. Um, I'm going to hit a question real quick. Um, Bulork asked, as an engineer, what did you think of MacroQuest Show EQ and what those communities were able to do with it? Um. You know, my initial response to those play really hated them. Like, I was not a fan of essentially spoiling the world, giving away all the secrets. Excuse me. But we ended up use, using them as tools, right? So they helped us find bugs. They helped us um, show where uh, we could improve, you know, just various different features in, this, in, in the game. Mm. And we've hired a lot of you know, some of the engineers who worked on those. I mean, Roy Altum is, you know, if you ever get Roy on here, which I'm sure you're pretty easy to do, um, you know, he came to EverQuest because he was in Top End Guild. He wrote Macro uh, Show EQ. Um, and he just wanted to make everything better. And he helped us fix a lot of those, those holes in our, I don't want to say security, but, you know, we were giving away, away a lot of information because of Invisible Men and, uh, was like there's like the pound like there was some information that players could get just from the name of the NPCs right and he helped us kind of hide all that because he was at the same time working on show EQ but at the same time defeating it because um, now he worked at SOE dude I forgot about the pound the pound and the name yeah that's how you made things unique yeah I, I and I, I was heavily dependent on the pound because of how hacky my shit was like the the curse definitely wound up with with the pound. Um, uh, Robbie, so Robin Yoba, yeah. So this will be saved as a highlight. Um, the vod will be in with the other vods, but for sure. So don't worry if you came in late, you missed something. Um, it'll be up there. You'll be able to check it out. And then, like I said, uh, with Todd hanging out around us right now, I think we could probably entice him into a second visit. Um, if this one starts to go long and we've only still gone three expansions in, um, <laughs> but you can stay here as long as you want tonight, dude. Um, so, so go ahead. The question was about whether or not it was, um, proposed to use the Alcabor server as, uh, you know, the EQ classic, time unlock progression servers. And the answer was, it was discussed like briefly. Um, really what the issue was is that yes, we had this code base from 2002, 
um, and the design content, which would have been like the ultimate true classic experience for good or bad, right? So I don't remember when hell levels were fixed, um, but I think in the version of the Alcabor server, they still existed. And I think I ended up fixing them later. Like, so you, you get the good and bad. You, you start losing, you get all the good classic stuff. No revamp zones, classic loot, classic experience bars, classic abilities, classic armor. There was no trade skills. Like the trade skills didn't have any of the class armor stuff on the server. Um, it would have been hardcore. And, and it was. Um, and that could be like, that would bring back the nostalgia for a lot of people. But at the same time, it had none of the niceties, like the inconvenient thing. I mean, you still fell to your death if you fell off a kelethin, right? Uh, I just jumped off a kelethin last night, and I don't even think I took five points of damage. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd still love to bring it back just for like a science experiment, but I don't think it would have any longevity. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Rolf asked, you said you worked on AA a lot. Did you think AAs would spiral to the extent they have? There are, there were 39,000 plus for Shaman by the time I left two expansions ago, and I think it's about 50K now. I mean, no, I never, never even imagined it's gotten that high. In fact, on the most recent servers I played was Cello's, um, the last uh, TL server, and then this one. Um, and I, I kind of avoided looking at the alternate advancement book. Like, my first goal was just to get to 50, and then I'd take a look at it. But, um, you know, I did a lot of the, um, just the back-end coding for it. So I kind of, I mean, we had some, looking back, there was some, definite holes in how we calculated a levels and stuff like that. But um, I had no idea it would take off and I had no idea that it actually would be like a template for, you know, alternate progression in general in games. Um, There's always some side, some side character. You can progress your character down or, you know, fine tune your character. And we never even considered you would get all the AAs even back then. Like the whole point was it was meant to be like a, a, a subclass. So you're going to specialize in this one thing, not specialize in everything. Obviously, as more expansions came out, it became more um, likely that you're able to get everything. Because yeah. there's it's the game kind of felt, and maybe this changed after I left, but it was in a perpetual state of how much longer can this go on? Um, yeah. You never knew when it was going to end, so you always... Well, I guess in development, we always thought it was the last expansion until we were told, oh, we need another box on the shelf, and then it became the next expansion. Yeah, it 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 felt like there's a bit of a, well, we know that we're on the curve. We don't know if we're hit maturity and we're riding the, you know, just going to be riding a long tail, and then how long is the company even going to allow us to make expansions, right? Because I think that was the idea, too. At least, again, just speaking for myself, it's like, at what point does the company say the entire team moves off this game as opposed to the players leaving? The intent was that everyone moves to EverQuest 2. There was the belief at the time that 
75% of our player base or more would just transition to EQ2 day one. Um, and we, and we were going to facilitate that from an engineering standpoint, we were talking about, um, grandfathering or, you know, creating some type of heritage link to your EQ account. Um, even though the, even though the time was reversed, we were basically going to kind of try to create some type of family link with EQ too, so that there'd be an incentive to obviously play EQ if you hadn't already, and then also to switch to EQ2, if you had played EQ, there would be some type of benefit. Um, obviously, with the time going backwards, that kind of didn't really make any sense. Yeah. What was the real percentage? Probably less than 20% that actually went over to, to EQ2. I mean, at that point, players had such commit, you know, they had committed lifetimes to EQ at that point. People had grown up, gotten married, had kids, named their kids Nagapin, named their kids Fiona V. You know, you can't just, you're not just going to leave, leave that, especially if you can't get a hundred percent of your guild to go with you. Right. That's probably more of the, the blocker. It's like, we need a hundred percent commitment from our guild. Otherwise we're going to start losing those social bonds, which was the whole point of our request. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that was a trend that we all saw, right? New MMO comes out. We would see maybe a dip in engagement, but then a month later, two months later, those individuals came back because it was kind of that you send the scouts out to kind of see, are we going to commit to this and take our whole guild or are we going to come back and keep going? Um, um, new question. Kemp asked, do you think we'll ever get rid of um, MacroQuest? Is it MacroQuest 2 on TLP MQ2? Um, or would that just cost too much in lost accounts? Um, I'm not really that familiar with MacroQuest. I'm assuming you're just... I mean, I don't think you could really get rid of it. I mean, in some other games I play... Uh, you know, they, they've embraced macroing. So I play a game called Tale in the Desert. Um, it's an old school game. It came out like early 2000, like 2001, 2002. There's a number of people that I've played with from the EverQuest team. Um, and they've embraced macroing. So, but their game is also insanely tedious, like making 10,000 bricks um, is a pain in the butt. So yeah, you're going to macro it. Uh, but you're never going to be able to defeat from an, from a developer standpoint. You're never going to be able to defeat macroing. Someone's always going to be able to create something that will work no matter what you do. Yeah, I I mean I had um, at a previous company and it wasn't Sony. Um, had a conversation because the CEO was like, "Hey man, I keep seeing in um, the community people are very upset about you know the the bots." We had people that were using pixel bots and all sorts of other bots. The game was very easily bottable. He was like, when are you going to get rid of them? And I was like, we ran the numbers and we can get rid of them today. We think you'll lose 20% of your accounts. Are you cool with it? Um, and so we never figured out how to get rid of the botters. Uh, yeah. So here, let me, let me type this. Well, I see a lot of people asking, um, Oh yes, make bricks. 
Oh, and I got logged. What? Hold on a second. What did I get logged out of? I was inactive too long on uh, the stream, so I got logged out. Of the stream? Or the the game? Uh, the stream. I can see the chat, but it, it just logged me out for some reason. I'm not sure why. Now I have to probably watch a commercial. Um, I kicked you out to get that commercial money. <laughs> uh, so a tail in the desert, they're like on tail nine. Um, so basically the idea is it restarts. Like every tail, it restarts and they add some new functionality or change the land a bit. Um, it's a very social community based game. Like you can't get anywhere solo. Like if you try to go solo into your own, like nomad, like I'm going to build my house out in the desert, you're going to be hurting. You know, I mean, it takes 20 minutes to travel anywhere. Uh, so you definitely want to contribute to a, a guild. And there's a whole bunch of like public community based guild. You can join that will help you. Um, it's, it's one of those things where if you just need to decompress from work and you're like, you know what will do that? A beer and like 10,000 bricks. And uh, that's what happens. <laughs> that makes absolute sense, though. Um, Ethan asked, ask Todd to tell what he knew about the test server wipe on June 20th, 2000. And what was the mood in the house? Ah, uh, Yes. Um, I saw that question pop up earlier and I was like, Oh, I don't want to touch that. Um, so that, that wipe happened because of that rune bolster belt example where, uh, every newbie rat in the game was dropping rune bolster belts. And and actually, probably Benita probably has some comments to this also. Um, so as developers, we were fairly angry that, you know, oh, yes, it's a test server, but people are playing for real on here. And we kind of gave them benefit of the doubt that it was like they're real characters. Um, and so they didn't report the bug for a long period of time to the point where every newbie, every person on the server had a room bolster built. So it broke the whole concept of what a test server is supposed to be. It wasn't, a, you know, oh, we're going to actually, you know, the, the point of it was that it was supposed to be as real of a server as possible. So it's more like a pre-release right. server. Right. And so you were supposed to respect the fact that you were still doing things for real. But if everyone on the server had max haste and this awesome item because there was no level restriction on it. And how could we ever properly test content again? Um, yeah. And I realized that not everyone logged in and, and didn't have one, but the large majority of the actual testing community did. Um, and like Benita said, it did invalidate all of our testing when we were trying to balance like, I don't want to say time to kill because that's such a like RTS or BR type concept. But, um, and so the decision was made to just wipe the server. And that was, the decision was made because, oh, well, it's just a test server. So we had two competing things. It was just a test server 
but it was also the test server that people spent the last X number of years playing on. And that was where they had everything. So I don't remember how the, the actual decision came down to actually wipe it, but yeah, that was pretty brutal. We definitely dealt with a lot of fallout from that. Cause we basically just, we screwed an entire community. Mm-hmm. Which isn't fun. You would think it'd be more fun to do that guys. It's just never fun. The, we did both the items or characters i think we just did i mean if we would have did the item wipe only it probably wouldn't have been that bad because you know we had a thing called um uh, as gms you know we didn't have a lot of time to play or as developers so a lot of times what we would do is just we would just buff a character to level 50 on live completely naked and then just play <clears throat> and the idea is that Anyone can get to level fifty, but really your gear was a, was a was a sign of your accomplishments. And so, I would say if we would have just wiped items, it would have been no big deal because the the people on that server would have been able to reclaim their items in a very short period of time. So I think I think we just I think we did a full wipe. Cool. We're reading chat now for those of you listening. Yeah, I'm reading chat too. It's kind of like people are going through the history of what happened. Um, so keep in mind as developers back then, we were like, there was hypersensitivity to anything. Um, even during development, the arguments, the fights, the, the short tempers, the whatever. So it was very easy to come to the conclusion if someone pissed you off, oh, they made us mad. I'll show you, you know, type thing. There was, you know, I'm just going to delete your character. And I, as a GM, I did that a couple times. Going back to, you know, some of the GM stuff, um, there was a bug where you could somehow get any low-level character in a plane of fear. I don't remember what the bug was. And so FOH and a number of guilds had all their twinks sitting in plane of fear. And just collecting, you know, planes armor that would would rot. And um, of all the work that I tried to do to to bring balance to the server in terms of the political landscape, it was one of those things that really, really made me mad. That I asked them not to do this while we fixed the bug, and yet when I called them out, and I'm I'm saying them, it wasn't any particular guild. I told them, it's like, hey, guys, log out, get all these characters out of the server or out of Planet of Fear right now, or I'm just going to start wiping your characters. And I literally would just inspect someone and just start deleting items off their character one at a time until they got the picture that I was serious. And I was like, looking back on that, and I'm like, oh, man, that was brutal. But that's what I, that's like, dang, I don't know. I don't know why I did that, but that's that's one of the things that I ended up doing. It was it was very early in the industry. Yeah, right? I mean it was it was uh, it was it was still that weird border of profession and hobby, I guess. Or well, keep in mind we were when we were GMs, we were actually the game masters, so we were considered the gods of the server. 
our rule of law was that was it. There was no, and each and each GM had their own rules per server, so general rules, but slightly variations of that rule. And uh, that was when you know, if you wanted a quest, say for example, people would run up to you and and you would give them a quest. Like we were meant to be the game masters. Hey, all right, so you're a newbie. You came running up to me. You know, you want to do a quest. I'm like, all right, go over here because we're pretty familiar with the classic world. Go over here. Go talk to this guy. Go complete that quest. Bring me back the item. And I'd be sitting there just answering petitions one day, and that newbie would come back two hours later. He's like, Hobart, I got the item for you. And I'm like, oh, crap. I was just kind of like telling you to buzz off. I didn't think you were actually going to go complete it. And he'd bring back the item, and I'm like, all right. He'd hand it to me, just like a quest NPC. And I'm like, oh, crap. Grab open my item book, and I'm like, all right, what would be a great item for a newbie? you know, plus five or 10 levels to make him feel like, oh, that was awesome. I'd create an item for his class and drop it back in the trade window and be like, he'd be on his way. Um, But apparently that had a really lasting impression on people because years later I would get random tells like, oh, do you remember when you did this for me? And I'm like, no, dude, but I'll take your word for it. Here's a stone. Yeah, Ethan, Ethan remembers the quest. For a light stone, and you gave, uh, gave him combine a longsword, which to, that's pretty badass. I mean, here you go. Yeah, and the thing is, is like you could, you know, it's not like those were rare items or anything. No. Or for a newbie who would, didn't even know that item existed, yeah, it was, and I think it was magical too, right? So... Mm-hmm. They could go knock on some wisps after they cut that sword or whatever weapon. All right. So Zade asked, is there a single person you think is most responsible for the spirit of EQ? Like how it feels and the lore. I assume we're referring to like original EverQuest, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, Zade can confirm. I mean, between Bill and Brad, um, those those core people, Bill, Brad, Steve, um, Zatkins, Tony, even the original artists, like they all contributed. You know, in the previous discussions, it's like when we created content in that field, you know, the artists and the designer were working hand in hand. They were collaborative, and then you know, if anyone needed engineering support, we were collaborative. Um, kind of roll my eyes a little bit because there's always a little bit of uh you know, hey, do this for me, I'll do this for you type thing. But, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, the vision TM um, was from those guys. Yeah. Todd, I may, oh, no, it looks like it cleared up. I'm wondering if Discord over time degrades and if we should reconnect, but it looks like you're less pixely again, so it could just be a bump in the internet. It's a little laggy right now. Um, you're like, a little bit delayed. Okay. Um, we'll keep going then until something breaks. Um, or until you need to bail. So let's see. Um, Nick asked, did SOE ever consider using EQMAC as a reference client for an EverQuest classic server, similar to what Blizzard did? Felt like you touched on that a little bit. Yeah. The answer is yes. Like I said, um, 
all the work I did on the Alcabor server to get it like back to having planes of power completed and all the flagging working and most of the item bugs and spell bugs fixed. Um, it's all in source control. Um, there's an EQ map folder in Perforce and it's there. If the team ever wants to resurrect it, the biggest issue is going to be integrating it back into, you know, all the platform systems uh, that go that have all been, you know, moved forward over the past uh, 18 years. Um, so it's not it's not a simple fire it up and it'll work. I mean, pick zone is not going to be there. There's no instancing. Um, so you know, I was in pick zone 33 last night in unrest like that's it's not going to exist so the problem is is you're going to have to you know spin up like 50 servers to handle a population like that and that's that's not really doable i don't think from a from a business standpoint cool and let's see Turnip asked, um, Scott Hartsman talked about a unit of time the game used, which was made and named after a dev. <laughs> the Uzen. Do you recall working with that at all? Oh, sure. I mean, it was just basically the server tick. Um, <clears throat> um, but yeah, I mean, I work with Roger Uzen a lot. Like, um, I think... I think he was more creative. Like his creative bone was was better than his architecting engineering bone. I mean, he could code anything. Don't don't get me wrong, but how he how he visioned it and how the code came out weren't always the best for the you know like long term maintenance of the product. Um, but uh, yeah, it just and then obviously I I helped make some of those weird oozins. Um, you know, you guys talk about the Bible of Musins. There's probably a couple that I contributed to in there. Most of those were during done during expansions. Um, so one of the things why that happened was is that our character files, the data we actually stored to represent everything about you, was one binary file. So it wasn't a database. There was no way to add more bag slots because it meant changing the binary format of your character. So a lot of the stuff, that's why we had to reuse functionality, like flying kick of two, um, various other parameters in your character file and NPC files, because they couldn't change at the time. So that's why a lot of those oozins, like it's more than just the, t- the timer, but it's also about everything else in the, mm-hmm. in the game. That makes a lot of sense. Or it paints a very clear picture, I guess I should say. Um, Let's see. Um, Did you have involvement in EQ2 as well? No. There we go. Concise answer. I I know nothing about the EverQuest 2 development. Um, Like I said, my highest level character in EQ is like 24, or EQ2 is like 24. Never. The, sorry, I actually take it back. The only thing I was ever involved in was the initial concept um, meetings. They were held off-site. I think we were in Coronado, and it was just like 
um, we would find some gaps within our, our normal development cycle on EQ and they'd pull us in and just ask, and we would just kind of like think about it. But I, I literally do not remember any of the concepts there. I was mostly just brought in for an extra body. It felt like, cause I was an engineer at that time. Um, but I think Bill Trost wanted me there or maybe Roger wanted me there. Uh, but it was mainly just high level design discussions. I really had no input into that whole process. Right on. And then the last one from behind the scenes, and then I'll be looking at chat. Um, thanks again, bunny for posting these. I really appreciate it. Um, Nancy asked, do you have any patch horror stories? Hmm. Um, no, actually I don't. Um, and I think the reason was because of how we patched, meaning that, um, we never really did these full blanket updates a lot. It was more like, we're going to update this zone. We're going to update these spells. We're going to update these items. So I can't really think of anything that would have been like a horrible, horrible story unless someone like jogs my memory. I remember one because I was in CS still at the time, but I don't know if you know what happened. There was a two week period where servers were randomly crashing and rolling back. Um, and it was completely random and we had to like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> My other computer just randomly turned on. That's always fun. Um, well, EQ World's crashing and rolling back wasn't a new feature. That was. This was this was like a this wound up having all of us in CS get to work overtime um, because it was just like weird bouncing. Not all the servers, not one server, random servers constantly for two weeks. If you don't remember, it's fine, but I do remember that period. So there was a time, but this was before that, because I'm thinking of like the nameless issue, if anyone ever remembers the nameless issue. Um, so what... Well, so these are Windows machines, and basically we wrote all the characters to a file store. Uh, it was just a file share. And it's very possible that um, we were having, like, file error problems with corrupt drives. And, it would, and so the issue is, again, going back to the, how the characters are stored, they're stored in a binary format on disk. And so if your filer goes bad... This actually may have been what the problem is. If your filer starts writing corrupt data or you have a disk failure or something like that and you don't fix all that data, every time the character gets read in, it can just cause your, your processes to crash because you're essentially just reading in garbage memory. Um, and I think that could be what it was because I think what we had to do is uh, go through and write a program that would find all these bad characters and then restore them from like last week. Um, because anytime one of those characters would log in, it would crash the server. Mm. And so it was just kind of random. Like, I think once they crashed the server once, like we would delete their character and then they would have to petition to get it restored, which would fix the problem. But, you know, back then you just have random people logging in from 
months ago and it would just crash again. Right on. All right. So we've got the last question that's actually back here now. Um, but we also have a lot of timeline ahead of us. I know for a fact, man, I don't want to impose on you sitting here for like four hours for us to get through. So I know for a fact that we can, we can break it and have you come back and cover more. Um, but like I said, uh, we'll go as long as you're comfortable. I'm here all day. All I, for my cool. day-to-day is just monitoring email to make sure my current job doesn't blow up. And then uh, I have to run to the bank at some point. That's about it. So right and I'll just be playing the rest of the day. So I'm, I'm good for a while. Cool. So um, Nick asked, was there ever any consideration on bringing EverQuest to a new game engine? I'm assuming that's ex- original EverQuest, not the additional projects that we're talking about in chat right now. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I don't think that was ever considered, given how proprietary everything was with EverQuest. There were no other engines to use. Like everything was written for EverQuest. There's no, there, I mean, you could, in theory, write a translator to to load up assets, but um, you would gain no benefit from the new engine. You have to you'd have to reauthor all those assets to for, for using shaders and textures and all that other stuff. It would, you might as well just make a new game at that point. Right. Um, do you know by chance how the history, do you know by chance the history behind the Bard class who is responsible for the Bard class who implemented it, song system, etc.? Um, no, actually, I don't. That would be a good question for one of the original developers. Like, I think that would be, uh, obviously, Bill would know, but uh, I think that's more of a Zakins thing. I mean, he was the spell guy. It feels like it would have been it would have been him. Yeah. Uh, but I could be wrong. Um, I've only, I only met GZ a couple times, I think mainly in passing, and so, but he's on the list of, I know that... Him and Ryan Palacio. He would come online. Yeah. He would do an interview. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. It'd be really nice to get some of those guys. I, I honestly didn't get a chance to meet or meet much um, on here as well. I know folks would have a lot of their questions answered from that period. Um, so now that we're kind of caught up on questions uh, timeline wise. All right. So Velius, then planes of power and, I mean, there was a there was a bit of a shift during that period, and I don't know. Did you leave? When did you leave? Um, so before we jump into that, did you want to touch more on some of the stories with Lucklin? Oh God, yes, yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah, Lucklin. Um, you reminded me of the the mount discussion the other day, and I, I had totally forgotten about that. But again, as I've mentioned multiple times in the stream. I'm always a proponent of the of the commoner of the casual player, um, and so that's where that horse price argument came from. Like, um, I forgot we called you out on that. Uh, I think it was uh, I think it was Rich that called you out on that one. Yeah. yeah. So what I oh the daily email thing. Um, I saw Ryan's. What what was that? Do you, it's probably funny. Someone probably has some of my daily emails. You know, when I left, I think when I left SOE, I archived my entire mailbox. 
Um, ah, yes. And I think I still have those somewhere. Um, I don't know where, though. But yes, worked on horse shit. That was pretty much every day. Getting horses to work in that game was a nightmare. Because we had to deal with old models and new models. And half the time when you spawned your damn horse, you were like riding inside of it. It's just like, oh, uh, it was, it just looked horrible, like the majority of the time. And then eventually, like, you know, Steve and I, I think Steve and I were doing a lot of the bug fixes related to that. But there is code everywhere that basically says, if on a horse, if on a horse. Because, I mean, everything had to be different. There was no, right. like, you had to play a certain animation and it still looked like crap because your robe was going through the horse. Um, or you were looking into the horse's head and all you saw was his eyeballs. Like, everything was just a mess. Yeah, yeah. So, um, first of all, Frank the Bank, you're on notice. Um, second of all, hate that the horses start slow and then take off. Boom, you're in a wall. Um, that, again, that was the, the compromise. I don't know if it was a compromise was the right word to use back then. Um, capitulation. Like, we were fighting to make them fun. And also at the same time, not too realistic and not overpowered. And so everyone, I don't, I don't know, remember where the idea of the ramp up and ramp down speed was. I hated it personally because, like, like you said, you end up in a wall, um, and then you have to like basically run into the wall for like five seconds while you try to get your horse to slow down. Oh, so horrible. Yeah. Um, Blue steel wheels. I think we covered that. I don't know if you were in here at the time. But I felt like we covered that question earlier with regards to revamps. Um, so if you weren't here at the time, check out the VOD when I post it later. Um, Miami Rice, uh, we've talked about that a little bit before. Um, I will say that uh, I was lead on the team during that. And we did have a lot of discussion about the impact on the social aspects of the game um, when we included the pop books. Um, but by that point we were already seeing that, um, the game had kind of moved on and there was a massive generational gap. Um, we can talk about that more outside of this. Um, unless Todd, you wanted to add something that maybe you haven't heard us tackle with regards to plane of knowledge. I mean, it is, it is, a byproduct of everything else that was happening at the time. I mean, while was, was doing his thing, um, you know, our boats obviously still had issues. I mean, they're not even in game anymore. Um, teleporting was, you know, Druid ports and wizard ports was still one of those things where you had to like, you know, find someone. Um, that was the challenge really. Yeah. Not everyone was open to that, right? You couldn't just send a message to a random wizard or Druid and be like, Hey, I need a port. Like they could be raiding, they could be doing other stuff. Uh, and there wasn't a system for, for doing that. So um, we knew it would be difficult for people to travel uh, through that much content. Uh, so POK became, you know, the next major hub, just like Shadowhaven and, and, and the Nexus was where, where everyone could get there quickly and then start, you know, and start digesting the content. Not, not even to mention like spells, right? So, 
I was just collecting my Druid spells yesterday and I had to go through four spellbenders in different areas of the world in order to get just, you know, my level 16 to 18 spells. So plant knowledge became that thing where, hey, let's just provide a one-stop shop for for all your spells. And a, a lot of what we were running into, too, was um, a lot of discussion during that period that folks may or may not remember. And I'm not saying it's the right way to do an MMO or, or whatever. But there's a lot of discussion about, hey, I can't play because it takes two hours to do anything. How do I get in, get where I want to go, especially as a new player, in 30 minutes and do something? And so Pac created social friction, at least in a hub, where you may actually see a high-level player as a low-level player once in your lifetime. And then the other thing, too, was like, how do I get in, meet my friend who is at a different starting city and play, and then that went to Eldon with, you know, basically the instance group dungeons and stuff. So, Yeah, I mean, like, as my druid on Eridun, I'm at the level now where I get bounced between South Row and, and Unrest constantly. I think I'm finally getting Southern Row, but I, I literally ran South Row to Solo Gators, and then someone sends me, hey, you want to come to Unrest? I'm like, crap, I just came from there. All right. I don't have my port spells yet because I couldn't find the stupid vendors. I finally had to go look on the internet. And so I run my butt back. Um, and thank God the boats are gone. Otherwise, you know, using the teleporters. And it took me like 10 minutes to get back. So my group was waiting on me 10 minutes. Um, so that's like one of the reasons. is just we wanted people to get to where they wanted to go quickly. Now, there was a side benefit, and that is the whole buffing thing, right? With mass group buff. Um, other aspects of that, uh, high level players can contribute to power leveling newbies passively. <clears throat> so there was that whole social aspect of, you know, um, people would announce, Hey, mass group buff on a general channel in 15 minutes. And every newbie, no matter where you were, could get to plan of knowledge in 15 minutes or less because there was always a book nearby. And then run to plan of knowledge and get their MGB, and then go back to their newbie zone and just wreak havoc on the area, right? And that was that was awesome for them. Cool. <clears throat> um, chat. I have a I have a actual like problem with. I don't. I, I never get sarcasm. It's funny. Jasmine laughs all the time. I don't get it. So I will just. I've learned to always read everything as a positive. So if. If you say something is good, I'm just going to take it as a good. Now you know. Um, let's see. Uh, it's the way my brain works. Um, Nils asked, "What was was a conscious decision to start deviating away from the archetypical monsters from D&T, etc., as expand, more expansions came out, or is that a natural progression as you felt certain mob types were exhausted or overused already? Also, would the dev GM teams play D&D together or at all, or is it EQ all the time? Um, what was the first part of the question about mob types? I don't remember. You mean like just a reuse of models versus like creating new ones? Uh, kind of going away from like the, the standard classic mobs to like inventing new crazy stuff. I mean, we had a lot of creative freedom, so I mean... Um, I think people were just bored of the same old crap, right? There's, you can only use like reuse bats so many times before you got to come up with something else or, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah. 
That's oh, and, and by the way, I I so I being a GM, I have a pretty thick skin, so I don't care if you guys are like, oh wow, well, that really did suck. I'd probably agree with you right now from when it was initially implemented. So and don't bother me. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, okay, cool. So I think we're caught up there. Um, other Luckland things. So there's, you brought up a couple incidents in passing. Um, one of them I'll, I'll bring up and that is the, uh, the Halloween incident. Um, and I think this actually happened in your office. So remember, I think it was you or Lawrence, um, placed that spider on the outside of your office. Uh, maybe, but what I'm remembering now is the thing that made noise. There was like a thing that was like, yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was one of maybe it was a spider. I just know what ultimately happens to it. I don't want to ruin the ending. Whatever it was, it was made of plastic. It made noise. There was motion and it was hanging up. It wasn't me that put it up there though. So I'm pretty sure it was Lawrence. Um, and the ending of the story is the best because, uh, he made money off of it, but, but the idea being that, you know, whatever reason it scared John when he walked by and it was one of those late evenings and he was pissed, like thoroughly pissed. And, you know, he says the F word a few times, walks over to his, his, uh, cube and we're all there. And also we hear like banging around in this cube and he's opened up file cabinets and he walks back over to that thing, takes off the wall and smashes it with a hammer. Now, first of all, everyone's like WTF who has a hammer in their cubicle. First of all, that sounds like a problem. Um, and then he hands Lawrence 20 bucks and he's like here. And Lawrence was like, sweet. The thing only cost me like three bucks. But it was one of those like, oh my God, I'm working with psychos. Like, I'm going to get killed in this office. Um, who knows what else people have in their, in their desk drawers. Uh, Empty liquor bottles. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that was interesting. It was one of the, but it was kind of normal. It was oddly like, it was not normal. Sure. But, it was it was kind of normal when something like that happened. It was like, oh shit, there is that intensity. Like, oh, that's not supposed to happen, but that kind of does happen. Um, and so, all right, well, well, everyone was just so busy they just had to get back to work. So you're like, oh, you know, someone can fall over dead next to you and be like, all right, well, we got him out of the cube, and the ambulance came, but we have to go back to work. Like it was, it was just like one of those things where we had priorities. Um, definitely not the mental health of people there. Yeah, it was, it was, it was tough times. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you remember, but that, that did happen. They didn't die, but they did. There was an individual on a different team that we won't name names. So I do remember someone being picked up by an ambulance at one point and just kind of like, Oh wow. That's, that's, uh, that's intense. But yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't the, the, the smasher was not smedley. 
No, no, no. The, the different John. John. <laughs> when you said John, I was like, oh, <laughs> we should probably clarify that at some point. Um, there was another incident that I'm probably not going to repeat unless you want to contribute to it where I got really, really angry one night and I might've gone into someone's office and yelled at them, uh, really, really loud such that I think the entire floor heard. Was it about Um, food? No. Okay. This was a different time then. So, um, the reason why I snapped was because I'm, if you kind of already heard, I'm proponent of the casual player. Um, I fight for people like, you know, as a technical director, um, I fight for my employees. Like I call management out on their bullshit. Like that's why people, that's why managers, some managers love me. Um, is that, you know, I, there's no, I don't sugarcoat anything. And I'm being like super politically correct in here. Like you are, um, but man, something just rubbed me wrong. I, I don't want to go into details, but I lost my shit. And I know you heard it. it and I, I could probably like text it to you and you'd be like, oh, yeah, that incident. Um, but basically, that was just one of those things where I felt like we were being abused, like more so than normal. Mm. Um, and I, I called bullshit and I made sure everyone knew about it. Um, even the poor artists that were probably had their headphones on heard me. Um, so, you know, that's me. I, I will always go to bat for you. Yeah. I, uh, I respected that. I mean, I was like a shell shocked, young, aspiring game designer at the time. Uh, and you know, I, I'll be honest, man, when I got there, I didn't know if you'd been on the team 10 years or, you know, a year, I just knew that you were established you called bullshit on things and, um, you know, people respected you. So I was just going to just kind of go with it. But yeah, there are a couple of times I don't, I don't, I can't place that specific one. You'll have to send me a message at some point, but I know there are a number of other ones and maybe it overlaps where you, you called bullshit and that it one. Okay. So this goes back into the weird thing with like the hammer on one hand. Um, it may seem crazy that you had to, on the other hand, it was so normal that something like if there was some yelling about some shit and like, Hey, this is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. That's just kind of how we operated. And then, you know, like it wasn't like a thing where it was like everybody freaked out. Now I remember some of them for sure forever, but it was just kind of like, it was, it was honestly one of the most just sort of adrenaline filled, intense periods. Um, and at the time, I thought that's the way it was always, always going to be. And over yeah. time, it stopped. But that yeah, that was not. I mean, you're right. Like we were, some, we were. Here's the. We operated more like a, a dysfunctional family than we did like um, coworkers, right? So I mean, we could yell at each other, like get in fist fights wrestling matches, whatever. But the next day we're all going to lunch together. We're all going to dinner together. Like I don't remember too many times where there was like people who took it really personally, or if they did it kind of like whatever it's been a week, they're, they're fine now. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
the uh, let's see so from Luckland we'll come back to Luckland stories as they come up but there was that transition then where I mean when you when you think about it that period of like launch EQ to when people started leaving to go to Sigil that's a fairly compressed amount of time that's only a few years but it felt like history was accelerating so fast during that period that those were very dense years. They were very dense years for the company, for gaming. Um, and so there was a big shift in, I've always felt like we were kind of like second wave, but as I hear more of the stories, maybe we were wave 2.5 or even three on the team. Um, you know, those of us that came up through the apprentice program, can you explain sort of your perspective on what was going on during that? After Legacy Vacation, Eldon, um, I think I did a little bit of work on Gates and Discord. Um, so I remember the people who were there around that point, but I was, I think I was frustrated from a career standpoint. Um, you have to remember, I, I think at that point, I was still an associate programmer or a programmer one after like three years. Uh, and I was like doing tons of work, you know, and we had just started rolling in some of the new management. You know, this is when Fister came in. Um, I mean, he came in after, after I think it was the line, right? Um, but Fister chewed me out. He blamed everything that was technically wrong with the game on me one time. And I, I, I just laid into him. Like it, I think I broke down in tears. So I was like, dude, you don't realize the passion we put into this product. And you come from casual games, which aren't really games. Like, oh, this is, I'm kind of devolving to anger, Todd, right? And I'm like, how dare you criticize my team and the work we did? We're the one paying the bills. Like, I was so angry. Um, and I think I actually get him, got him to step back. And he apologized to me because, you know, he didn't understand he didn't have any visualization on how much effort we were putting into this product and what type of horrible management decisions we had. I mean, the horses came in like 11th hour. That was one of those direction type things. Um, but yeah, I was around till, till Gates of Discord, but I honestly don't remember much from that. I think I was at that point either not happy with what I was doing because I wasn't part of, I was not part of the creative process anymore. I got removed. So when, when the new management came in, and I think this was right after Scott left, Scott Hartsman, hmm. there was a clear line made between designers and programmers. Programmers no longer could provide feedback or do creative content, and programmers had to implement what designers wanted. Even designers that were doing bad things, right? So, I mean, it was just like, I could, I could not take a zone and go do that anymore. Like I lost all that creative freedom. And that's when I realized that that part of our request at that, during that time frame, was now about churning out expansions and not really about, you know, um, what I came to love and why I worked at, why I came to work at SOE. So I saw an opportunity, um, you know, Lawrence had already left to go to sigil um, numerous people that we went through that whole cycle with 
um, had left Steve Clover, uh, a whole bunch of other people. And so they reached out to me one day and they're like, Hey, we know you're not happy. We want you to come work at sigil. And I'm like, done. Like it was a very informal process. There was like my interview process was literally, hi, I'm Todd. Hi, I'm Todd. And that's it. And they're like, you're hired. Cause you already knew most of those guys, right? I mean, yeah, it was just an informal process to meet like new people who were just new to sigil and not had never been associated with, uh, with SOE. Yeah. Cool. And then, so the, the sigil experience, did you, we haven't gone into a lot of detail there. I think the only person that was on that team was bill when he was in and mm-hmm. we, we, we touched on it a little bit, but not a lot. Um, is there some insight you want to provide there? So I was mainly brought in to help with the, the backend server part. I mean, it's remember we were using like unreal 2.5 or two, like they really didn't have a concept of an MMO engine at all. Um, and so Vanguard had these massive cities, this massive world, and they're like, dude, we can only get like 50 players in one of these mega cities, um, which is a problem because there was like 4,000 NPCs in these cities. Uh, so, yeah, I did a lot of the back end stuff just to, tr- just to squeeze out whatever I could out of the Unreal Engine back in the day. Because remember, it, it's, it's night and day between that engine and what is Unreal today. Um, back then, it was literally just loop over everything in the game and the engine and see if it needs to do work. You can't really do that with, you know, I think it was like in some of the cities, like Call or was like, there's like 500,000 objects um, in those cities with thousands of NPCs and hundreds of players. And it just did not function. I mean, if we got, if we got one frame a second on the server back end, we were happy. That was actually okay for a city, a city zone. Yeah, it was a massive challenge. I can't speak to the specific technical aspects of it, but I know that when we were doing DC Universe in Unreal 2.5, uh, it was like that 2.5 to 3 period, um, we were doing it with uh, the guys in Seattle were also using it for theirs, the agency. And it was like, so we were doing DC, the agency was using it as well, and I think Sony had an initiative to just sort of help them make an engine that would work with it. And man, it seemed like we spent years just trying to get it to do basic MMO stuff. (laughs) It was, yeah, it was definitely not a good choice. Like I said, we, and for Vanguard, we ripped out, I ripped out most of, you know, it wasn't really recognizable as unreal at that point on the back end. Um, A question just came in related to that. I think you see it right there. It's the bottom question in hindsight. Do you think it would have been better to build an engine from the ground up uh, for Vanguard or keep using Unreal? Well, so yes and no, but I think you could have got a, gotten away with two separate parts. Um, uh, from the engine standpoint on the client side, I think it definitely accelerated the development process initially with just our creation. Um, really, what I remember the big issue was is, is that uh, we made a lot of proprietary changes to the Unreal Engine to support what we needed. And what that did was it kept making it more and more difficult for us to keep up with Unreal's development. 
Yeah. So as Unreal rolled out, you know, 2.5, 3.0, added features, we weren't able to take them anymore. And we had we had completely forked our engine for the most part. And I think in the long run, that really did hurt us uh, because we were not able to collaborate with Epic anymore on features, whether it would be including, you know, redoing how we do like the MMO aspects of it. We were never able to, to collaborate on those and provide any code back to them. And probably it was a licensing issue because we worked for Microsoft and Microsoft probably claimed they owned everything. But um, yeah, anyways, that was, I would have said the best route would have been um, Unreal for the client, no problem, art development, everything else like that. And a completely new uh, server backend would have been better than trying to use the the Unreal Engine as a server engine. Yeah, I mean, as a tool set, like when we first hopped in there and we're doing prototyping and things like that, I loved using Kismet, Kismet and Matinee and things like that at the time. Um, it, but it seemed like by the time we got back into it for what we were actually going to do, everything had been gutted for us, at least on our project. I had no access to matinee or kismet um, blueprints these days, I guess. Um, and it was just kind of like, Oh, so this is essentially a renderer. Like it's, you know, it's all the things that I was hoping to use weren't there as a designer. Um, yeah. So how long were you there? Uh, so came in, I think it was around 2005. Um, I think it launched in 2007, if my memory serves me. So I spent about two, two and a half years there. Um, so when we launched, obviously we launched, launched as a SOE product at that point. Um, so part of that whole agreement was obviously we wanted, you know, SMED wanted people back. Um, so it was very, it was very personal to him to, to reunite the, the, the teams, um, back under SOE. So when, when Vanguard was brought back to SOE, I was actually became the lead engineer, technical director on Vanguard. Um, and we, you know, we got downsized to a fraction of the team. Uh, you know, we worked on the trial Island, trying to get the, you know, get the newbie experience fixed and you know optimizations and try to relaunch um relaunch the product and it had like a little bit of a revitalization but really it was just a, for all intents and purposes i feel like it was more of a technical disaster than the content i still love it like i still mm-hmm. have our memories everyone brings up diplomacy i was a crafter i loved crafting um i love the whole like uh what was it not salvage, but they had a whole salvage mechanism, which is like essentially your reverse crafting. People would send me crap all day long in the mailbox. And then I would like, I would uh, recycle it and send it back to them. Um, and I did a lot of those features. Like I mm-hmm. did a lot of the coding for housing for, um, uh, I didn't like the auction house. I did um, the whole thing. I mean, the, the documentation around, what the housing system was supposed to be. Like we only scratched maybe like one tenth of the surface 
like those housing zones, if you guys played it like around the cities, we're supposed to, you were supposed to evolve your housing area into a district or like, you know, you would start with a village and then you would get like um, a small city, you'd belong to a district and basically you could level up your housing, your whole area. Um, and then we we're going to have NPCs attack your housing. You'd be able to put up like towers. Like there's just tons of stuff that was completely unheard of in a static world environment. Remember you were, when you bought a house, you own part of the world. It wasn't like an instance anymore. It was just, and that was one of the visions for Vanguard. It was that everything is, you know, part of the world. Mm-hmm. I think there was a, a pretty strong negative reaction to instancing at the time. Cause that's probably when WoW had to start doing instancing. And there was some definite backlash on that, on the, on the development team. Yeah. I, I, <clears throat> Because I remember when we put instancing in for Eldon, there was there was definitely concerns raised, um, even even from folks that weren't on the team any longer. Um, but again, at the time, we we felt like that was that was the direction to go in. It solved problems, and um, yes, it was going to introduce some new ones. But we hadn't really seen those new ones firsthand yet. So there you go. So I could I could see that with Vanguard. Um, yeah, Ethan, uh, Anarchy Online was doing instancing probably first, but uh, as we mentioned in, in some previous ones, I could have sworn that they were doing single-player instances uh, that were procedurally generated at the time. Um, and then we hopped on it uh, as a solution for some of the problems we were running into in the live game and with Pop. Um so it was we we saw it as a stone that could hit several birds at once, including providing content for more casual gameplay, etc. Stopping zerging, so things like that. Um, I see a mention of uh, boat building. Um, yeah, so yeah. Steve Clover's uh, pet projects. Um, I mean, you're right. Boats, like building your first boat and then being like, I'm just going to sail around. That was, that was an awesome experience. Um, is Vanguard completely dead? Um, I know there's the, em- the emulation project out there. I, I, you know, if they, if they complete anything, you know, if they're able to complete any amount of it to get towards what Vanguard was, I'd be shocked. That was such a huge amount of content behind it. I'm secretly optimistic that Vanguard might be, um, might make some type of comeback. Um, I would definitely love it. Like I have, you know, I have, like I was at SOE up until June of last year. And uh, I actually um, was talking to Brad at the time about Vanguard and what they were doing at Pantheon. And I fired it up on my PC at work and it's amazing how much better the hardware deals with that game now. Like there's, there's no loading times transitioning between areas. It's just, it's instantaneous. Um, it feels like a different game. Um, but again, you have to remember like client side alone. Yeah, you can do that. But the back end tech uh, would require a significant amount of resources to get back into like just if you think of a cloud architecture or just working with daybreaks platform systems would take 
you know, a decent amount of time. So no one views it as a, as worthwhile. Fair enough. There's a question that came in. Uh, Gypsy Prince asked, do you think there will be a new MMO that captures the same essence of EQ? No. You have to... EQ was, you know... For new people, maybe they might they might have some sense of that in, in different games, but um, for the EQ people, you'll never be able to... Con- convince them that it'll be a new a new EverQuest. You know, I see, you know, mention of EverQuest next. And yes, I did work on that for like two years. Um it was called Landmark at the time. I don't think I have anything out. I kinda like kinda don't want to talk I mean, it's not that I don't want to talk about it, it's just it's not something I'm excited to talk about. Like Landmark um was painful from a development cycle. It brought back all the worst aspects of Luckland with none of the with none of the team building. Um, so it was it was really annoying. Um, but yeah, you 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 can't recapture something like that. Like you would have to bring someone into the world that's never experienced a virtual anything, like a three D world. Uh, you know, you'd have to you have to bring someone back from some island somewhere where they don't even know phones exist and put them in front of, you know, a virtual world like, like EverQuest, and then they might, might have that feeling. But for us, that's just normal day now. So it's not going to come back. Yeah. Um, man, just kind of sitting with that one for a minute. I just kept thinking of like the eighties as well. It's like, nothing's going to, nothing's going to, to feel like the 80s to me we were talking about that on a stream the other day i'm like i don't even understand i was like 11 at the time like why was my heart broken when aha was singing you know that music video it's like dude i didn't even have a heart yet i was like i don't think i got issued one of those till i was like at least 12 or 13 and but sure enough man the nostalgia hits and it's very much the same thing for me and eq it's like just massive nostalgia yeah, and I mentioned earlier, like, I started out with uh, working on a mud out and off of Circle Mud. <clears throat> it's actually, I don't, it might still be out there. It was, it was made by some of my best friends. It's called The Realms of Tremaria. <clears throat> and uh, it was a Circle Mud, and it was, we ran it at our server at our internet cafe. We had a T1 line, so it was like, everyone played on our mud because there was no lag. Um so, um, I mean, everyone as in like, there was probably like 10 people playing it. Right. So it was, it was in perpetual beta. It was never released. I don't think it got listed on any of the major boards. Um, but when you go from that to experiencing phase three beta of EverQuest, that's like, that blows your mind. And that's where you kind of get that. Oh, well, you know, you dream in text and then all of a sudden you can actually see your dreams, like sit there in front of you. You can see, you know, Kinos. Kinos is is a vast. It's a vast city. It's a massive city, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's just from a visualization visualization standpoint, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. That's how you wind up driving and joining a company two weeks later. Like when when the call comes in, right? You're like, what? I mean, this is the thing, right? You're just like, I don't care what I'm doing right now. I'm going to drop everything. I mean, I literally. 
told my mom, Hey, I'm leaving to go to California. I went and bought a new car because my car would never make the drive out there. I've never flown before. So I wasn't going to fly out there. I drove into San Diego. I remember coming in on the eight and going, okay, like there was no phone to look at maps. Like I have to find the variant office by actually pulling over somewhere and looking at a physical map, you know, and driving up the 805 to the five or like just right off there on, you know, we're uh, off Miramar road and then pulling up to the building going, Holy crap, I'm here. Like, yeah. what do you do? Like you just, you buzz the door and then someone answers and they come down and pick you up. And it's like, I'm here. And they're like, they set you down. And they're like, Oh, we have a seat for you. And Crazy. Yeah. My heart was racing so much. I didn't even know where I was sleeping when I landed. Like when I got there, I had, I had no place to sleep. Um, and luckily, like I said, the, the whole team is like, Oh, well you can just sleep on our couch or sleep wherever until we figure things out. Yeah, I had I had three days. I had a U-Haul that I could only afford to keep for three days. And I had enough money to maybe get an apartment. And so I had a girlfriend, two cats, I think maybe a snake. I thought I brought them with me. And a U-Haul full of stuff with my like, you know, little SUV strapped to the back of it. And I, I essentially had to find, I had to do th- two things. Find an apartment and go up and actually see if they were hiring. Like, and I hit Dave Neville up in IRC and was just like, Hey dude, I'm actually out here. And he was just like, I thought you were joking. I'm like, <laughs> I'm here. Um, do you think I can apply for a job? And he's like, I'll ask Michelle. <laughs> you know what? If it, if it wasn't for Michelle. Yeah. Like, um, you know, there's that person who just is the nicest person who will do anything for you. who will give you ever, every opportunity possible. And that is Michelle. And like I said, if she didn't call me that one random day when I was working and I didn't answer the phone, I would have never, you know, known about this job. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, she gave everyone a chance and you know, Jeff is the same way too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Super fortunate timing um, for me, you know, like I just, I look at it and it's like, man, how did all that shit line up and how were those people there? Right. Like for this is meant to be sort of, so to look back on our discussion so far, it sounds crazy folks. And there's some crazy shit and there's some yelling or whatever, but dude, I'm so happy that that opportunity existed. I'm so happy that, you know, the original crew and Smed and all those guys made the game. First of all, that blew my mind, but to have like, to be able to meet Dave and have him be like, cool. I'll ask Michelle and to have Michelle actually be cool. And like, give me the chance, you know, like meeting Jeff and the team and all the folks at the time, like none of this is in any way casting a shadow on anybody. Crazy shit happened, but dude, thank God. Otherwise I, I literally would not be here in Sweden at the moment. You know, I wouldn't have my girlfriend and my dog, right? Like none of this. And you can't do that today. Right. So if you, if you just show up at some random studio, they're going to cart you off in a loony bin. They're going to think you some crazy player wanting to do them harm just because of all the past experiences. Right. We, the idea of like, you know, dealing with angry players only became an issue. Like 
don't know, like when did we really start screwing with stuff in design that really started making players angry? It was probably like not until like um, Velius or Lucklin. Like I felt like most things were pretty positive from the player standpoint until there was we started a- screwing with stuff. Random bannings. There were those random guys that would show up or threaten to show up. We had one guy show up, but the people that met him at the door, I think, dissuaded him from wanting to stay. He got real cool, like Andy and a few other <laughs> folks. We all... Yeah, and that's and that's the other thing is like people didn't really know how to react. Like once they probably saw those guys, they're like, "Oh crap!" You know, I'm now actually talking to the devs. How? And that's the same thing that's like when we went to fanfares. <clears throat> We were like, oh, God, the players hate us right now. Abashi's dealing with, you know, the forums. And we go fanfare, and it's, yeah, they might, you know, corner you and, you know, ask you questions that might make you uncomfortable for five minutes. But then they're like, oh, but this thing over here you did was so awesome. And then they change their, you know, you know, they're like, can I buy you a drink, right? Because even though I'm really pissed at you for doing this, like, you helped me these five other times. And then, like, I've never... I shouldn't say never. Later on, like in late, late SOE fanfares, I did feel uncomfortable getting cornered a couple times. But really, at that point, you just kind of realized that some people, a request was their life. It was changing. They weren't happy. They didn't know how to deal with it. Um, but early in those early days, they were, it was fine. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's see. I'll read this question off, uh, but while I'm taking a quick pause, EQ Mule, thank you for the follow. Uh, Tenoran04, Get Lost Greg, Dimebag Darnell, and Chamber 12. Thanks, guys, for being here. Um, Miami Rice says, Free Luckland was the best EQ in my opinion. The direction EQ went with Luckland Plus changed the whole landscape of the game. Uh, was there heavy ab- uh, heavy advocates to not go the Lucklin route? I don't remember specifically. Um, I think the the vision had kind of started changing at that point, and when I say vision, I mean the vision TM vision. Um, there was definitely less oversight from Brad and Bill and some of the other senior ones at the time. So, um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily agree with the way it went after, well, I would say later than Lachlan. Um, what was it like? What was the, was it Gates of Discord, the one that was just like the crazy, the crazy power? I think Ryan was talking about that the other day. Um, again, that was that was that expansion. Or was it Gates? What was the one that was just an insane power jump for NPCs? I think that's the one we were discussing with Gates. Um, with uh, both Ryan, did Rich hit on that? I don't know that Rich did, but I know Ryan hit yeah. a little bit on that. See that was that that expansion totally went against what what I feel is appropriate for a game, right? So I'm all about oh. the common guy, and there was no way some casual player is going to walk in there and even like kill trash. Like 
you know, you needed a small multi group. I feel like some people need to do multi groups to, to kill some of that crap initially. It was, um, it was, thank you, bunny. Akil just talked about it. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and, and he was, he was the one that was also just sort of pointing out some of, some of how that happened. Um, with regards to timing, what made it in, what didn't make it in, uh, what was expected. And I, I do think what I was thinking about when I was picturing the discussion with Ryan was and Rich are covering just the sudden change in team composition. Then when uh, Scott, Rich, and I got sort of yoinked over, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I I, I think I, I now that I think about it, when you guys got yanked off the team, I seem to remember having a very negative reaction um, to that because I'm like. You know, um, I don't remember our dynamic specifically, but I I remember having very positive working relationship with you guys for the most part. I'm sure, there was always an exception to the rule, but I felt it was kind of like a bullshit moment to yank off you guys to work on this new product when really this game EverQuest I felt at the time was still had tons of room to grow. From uh, I know everyone was like, oh, WoW's out, you know, EverQuest is dead, but the numbers really didn't bear that out too much. People, yes, they went to play WoW, but they didn't really leave EverQuest. Um, <clears throat> they kind of just silently paid for their sub for the next very long period of time, and as a developer, we were all very grateful for that. <clears throat> yeah, and again, it kind of goes back to that whole looking looking back we 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 know now i mean i'm sitting in the game 21 years later um but there's always that feeling of again how long does this last and how do we safeguard the company best by so at the time my reaction was poor but when i look back and i've sort of seen it with other mmos you know i mean because i've just only worked on mmos since then um it's it's gotten easier with hindsight to go, hey, if you've got a flagship title, look at how you can reinvest in that title, maintain the longevity, you know, like what is the best way to potentially rebuild systems or, or you know, look at examples like RuneScape and other companies as well that have really, you know, shown, hey, you can keep this going for quite a while. I think CCP with Eve has shown some good examples of that. Um, but 20 years ago, I, I really do have the, the feeling that folks were really worried that like, Hey, if we don't get people to buy into our next thing, they're, they're going to quit EQ at some point. Um, and we'd rather they don't go somewhere else. Yeah. And, and like, there wasn't really a huge push to revamp the game, like from, uh, you know, like what, what Blizzard does with wow, like they pull it off revamping the old world, um, better than obviously I think any game out there that I'm familiar with. And, uh, that wasn't something that at the time the company wanted to chew on. Like Antonica and original Norath was massive in scale. Like how do you, how do you re-envision that within the same product and have people not get hugely angered? And it was, it was because we weren't used to change. Like players never got accustomed to change. Um, had we done something on a regular basis, 
that changed the world so that players felt like it was ever evolving, um, then perhaps we would have been able to pull it off. But instead, we just kept pushing out expansions and left the old world old and you know outdated at the time. And everything, everyone, it was just expected everyone moved to the expansions. Yeah. And, the, and I mean, there's a lot of good learning there. This was a discussion that we're having a lot at my last company even um, because the game that I got when I, when I got there, the game was like seven years old. It only had 20 levels of gameplay. Um, so super shallow, but the, it was still just linear growth year after year. And the girls that were playing it, would they would make their own content in a sense, right? And treat it like a sandbox. The thing was, they they never really had the opportunity to grow it very big. So it always had a nice social feel to it. And I was like, guys, this is good. You know, like having seen a game that builds the universe out to the point where you'll never see the people on the far edges if you come in the beginning unless you click to make me level 200 button. Like, it's it's. I think that's a better direction to go. It's just we didn't really know that at the time. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Um, that's that's why there was always that general pushback about expansions every six months. Yeah, because it's like we're we're you know we have this rat race with with content, and we're never going to win against the people who are playing fifteen hours a day, seven days a week. Um, you know, but we yet at the same time we kept creating content for them. Um, and obviously, we we did some work for everyone. Like you know, uh, Dan. Dan Enright, if you remember him, he did you know he worked on a lot of the, the crafting quests for class stuff. He did a lot of like he was kind of in my in my uh, corner of the philosophy of, of, of creating content for the casual player, mm-hmm. something that was accessible by everyone. Because not every you know the, the percentage of people who actually went to the planes or did the super raid content was was so small compared to like the actual size of the player base, right. So, Todd, we have just hit the three-hour mark. <laughs> I'm just looking through the questions to see if there's anything, um, you know, obviously don't want to necessarily, this is an EQ stream, but... Um, well, it's, it's, well, let me, let me correct that. It's a stream that allows us to get together, talk about EQ with people that are passionate about EQ. But the thing I found almost instantly was people... We're discussing EQ, EQ2, Vanguard, Pantheon, you know, like the other MMOs. And because of all the links, you guys have worked in different places, you know, AOC, all of this stuff. Um, it was kind of cool because I was immediately like, right on, this will be a variety stream rooted heavily in EQ. Um, but yeah, so I think all of the, all of the topics are a fair game. Hold on a second. I think one of my kids is coming in. Oh, right on. Yeah, I only got a few more minutes. Um, I'm going to watch the kids while the wife does some errands. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll um, we should definitely catch up. There's some more stories. I got some. I actually got some props behind me. I was gonna got some stories behind them. Uh, so yeah, let's let's touch base again. So yeah, let's do that. I tell you what, um, we'll wrap up today. We'll hop on a Discord. 
Um, and you know, if, if not tonight, uh, depending on when I wrap up here, I may be crashing out, but we'll hop on discord. Let's talk about getting you on for another one and yeah. we can frame, yeah, kind of just fire them over to Sean and then we can, uh, kind of try to remember and get some of those stories talked about. Yeah. Bunny's bunny's been trying to, uh, get me to make like a questions channel in in our discord which i've got to figure out the best way to do it should it be free form where people send them to us and then we put them in there so people know what's what's coming uh, but we'll start gathering up questions you think about the stories that you want to hit on next time we have a nice stopping point with your return to soe and then we can talk about what happened after that um, cool. and I, I think we'll have plenty of material for another three hours coming up in the not too distant future Sounds good. Awesome. All right, then. Todd, it's been fantastic. Thank you for popping on. Say hi to everybody for me, and I'll, I'll hit you up as well about some people to follow up with. All right, cool. Take cool, care. Man. Yep. See you. Thanks, Kendrick.